the racial divide did become much more dramatic to me in the summer of 1938 because of a dreadful incident that shattered the normal calm of our town and forever changed the way I perceived Coatesville, even as a teenager, as a good and wholesome place to grow up. Helen Moore, a white teenager a little older than I was, had been walking in the woods near her South Hill neighborhood when she was attacked by a man. Coatesville didn't have that much excitement, so this was a big deal for us. The girl was unconscious. When she came to, she couldn't remember who attacked her. Everybody had a theory. Everybody wanted to solve this mystery. However, within a short time, the rumors started spreading that a young black man had attacked the girl and that he had raped her. Because my parents hadn't talked to me about the birds and the bees, I wasn't sure what rape was, but I had an idea and it wasn't good. The town went crazy over the black man, a steel worker who was arrested and taken to the jail. Within hours, a huge mob of white people assembled on Main Street and began talking about lynching the suspect. They had guns, knives, and rope, and they meant business. There were hundreds of white men, maybe more. I remember my stepfather going a little crazy himself, though on the other side. This ain't gonna happen again, he swore. I had no idea what the again meant. My father had a brother who had a rifle that he used to shoot groundhogs which we fried and ate. On that hot day in 1938, my stepfather and his uncle got that rifle and joined a mob of black men who went out to stop the mob of white men before they hanged the accused black man. My mother begged him not to go, warning him that he would get himself killed. I had never seen her so emotional, weeping and screaming, Don't be a fool, she entreated him. They'll kill you, and then they'll come kill us. Suddenly, I got scared, not just of losing my stepfather, but for my mother and myself as well. My mother thought I was in my room. When she saw me listening, she marched me back to my room and closed the door. Emotional outbursts were forbidden in this household and certainly not for my eyes. So, I hold up and I listened to the screaming, followed by an endless silence. All I could do was shudder and pray for my family. A few hours later, my prayers were answered. My stepfather returned with good news, which I heard that night only by eavesdropping and later by gossiping with my friends. What I learned was that 
there had been a showdown on Main Street right near the jail. It was something out of the Wild West like I had seen in the movies. The Gary Cooper part was played by the Coatesville Chief of Police, a tall, brave white man who faced the two mobs and declared that justice had to be served and this was not the way. What stopped everyone short was when the chief warned that Coatesville didn't need another Zack Walker. Coatesville, he said, had been the shame of the nation. It would be even worse this time. The mere mention of the name Zack Walker was like a magic password that somehow silenced the violent white mob and vindicated the black one. The men all put down their weapons and the crowds dispersed. The black prisoner was taken away to another city by the chief of police for his own protection. Within a week, another man was arrested who confessed to the rape of Helen Moore. He was white. The again my stepfather had referred to got me very curious. And who was this Zack Walker? I had never heard his name mentioned before, but after this awful incident, he was all that folks in Coatesville talked about for months to come. It was the town's dark secret and now it was out of the bag. In a way, I wish I had never known. Something about the scene reminded me of the crucifixion of Christ with the crowd cheering as the match was lit and the pyre ignited. This poor man was hardly Jesus, but he deserved better than this. He certainly deserved a fair trial or even an unfair one. Even witches got trials. Soon after the near lynching following the rape of Helen Moore, one white boy at school proudly brought out a bone fragment that his father claimed came from the charred remains of Zachariah Walker. He showed it around as a great souvenir. I was disgusted. Apparently, the town vultures chopped up Walker's bones, his manacles, the footboard, and the rail fence to which he was bound and sold them off at great profit. The Cows, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, May 9, 2022. So I have been told. Today's broadcast, man, oh man, I have so many great quotes to read from the book, but one of the best, Zachariah Walker and Gus T. Renegade, both described as two worthless Negroes from Virginia. Like, man, I fell out of my chair when I read that one, as I did with many lines from the text. Anywho, the passage that we heard beginning the broadcast for today signature work from our book club 10 years we've had a book club at the cows 
I can only I have to walk you through exactly how we got here for listeners. That's why I say it's always best to hear this program chronologically. So how did we get here for our guest on today's broadcast and even our book club that we are concluding this week? S.E. May Washington Williams, dear Senator, how did all this start? We had Dr. J. Russell Hawkins as a guest on our program a few weeks back early part of spring we discussed his book the bible told them so southern evangelicals fought fight to preserve white supremacy full title he's on the program uh, white man professor hawkins and J. Strom Thurmond is one of the central characters in the book uh, they're grousing about so-called school integration uh, desegregation, Brown v. Board of Education, tons of letters of illiterate white parents or at least white parents with really bad spelling and grammar writing, we don't want Negroes in school, they're going to rape our daughters and rah, rah, rah. And so they're writing to Senator Thurman uh, to say, you got to do something. We can't have this in South Carolina. What are we going to do? Uh, and so this goes on and on and on, pages of all this throughout the book. And I say, man, uh, Dr. Hawkins, how, in fact, I prefaced my question. I read from the very same book, Dear Senator. I read and said, man, how did you get through this whole book and have not even a paragraph about S.E. May Washington Williams? Strom Thurmond is getting all these letters about, you know, we can't got to do something. These raping black males and he's raping a 15 year old black child. Like what? in the world and he said oh my goodness I knew about S.E. May and all that but I didn't know Carrie Butler was 15 and I said man that is totally irrelevant even if she was 55 like at least a paragraph should have been included about that especially if we're going to use the terminology separation like I mean really if it's separation Mr. Thurman get your penis out of that 15 year old black child if it's separation that was our conversation with Professor Hawkins. And he said, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I said, man, that is lame. Either way, you have a doctorate in history. So either I think you're practicing racism, especially because this is the pattern white people lying about and concealing all of this rape. That's what I would have to think. I mean, either if you want to say that you're ignorant, that just means that you're a lame historian. You can take your pick or it could be both anyway. So we were supposed to read a totally different book I already had it selected had promoted and I thought that was so atrocious either way for him to be racist and leave it out or for him to say oh I'm ignorant and I didn't know she was 15 we switched on a dime and said we're going to read Essie Mae Washington Williams memoir Dear Senator that's the reason you even heard me doing the narration for the first week <sighs> What a great decision. I can pat myself on the back for that one. Wow. Before you even get to raping Strom Thurmond in the book, child raping Strom Thurmond in the book, the first chapter, 1938, is about Zachariah Walker, which you heard Gus reading at the beginning. Worthless Negro from Virginia, Gus T. and Zachariah Walker. Wow, I can only say reading more important than watching television. 
The University of Washington is so important to the legacy and history of the Cows radio program. Gusty isn't even affiliated with the institution. They too think of me as a worthless Negro from Virginia. But I've spent so much time at that institute checking, going through the archives, trying to get information. That was the one facility that had a copy of the book we are discussing today. No Crooked Death. If it wasn't for them, maybe you wouldn't have the program because I wouldn't have been able to read this book. Lots of great info. And in fact, I told folks when I went to get the book on Zachariah Walker, I stumbled across the lynching section at the library, a library that I have visited like a gabillion times. I've never seen the lynching. And I mean, it's all black people being lynched, mostly black males, but whole section, the Zachariah Walker book wasn't even in the lynching section. But that is the full kind of condensed version of exactly how did we get here today? And it worked out so beautifully. As I said, we're ending Dear Senator Thursday in the book club. And I'd be willing to wager because she mentioned Zachariah Walker so many times. He will be mentioned one more time before we wrap it up. We'll see. Our guest for today's broadcast, he wrote the book. The full title, even where did the title come from? No Crooked Death, Coatesville, Pennsylvania, and the lynching of Zachariah Walker. Uh, He's been the director of the University Honors College uh, and a history professor, emeritus professor, uh, at Millersville University in Pennsylvania. He has a specific focus on U.S. history during the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, will be a hoot to have him on the program joining us live well timed uh, our guest uh, Dr. Dennis B. Downey Dr. Downey are you with us sir? I am good evening thank you so much for sharing a bit of your spring Monday evening uh, for our listeners uh, I'm sure for some folks this is their first time hearing about you and your work uh, anything that you would like to tell us briefly about who you are and the work that you do sir? Surely, I, I'm a retired professor of history uh, from Millersville University, which is a state university in Pennsylvania. Uh, I should say that uh, my co-author is Raymond Heiser, who teaches at uh, James Madison University in Virginia. It was quite uh, by accident that we uh, connected and were interested in the same subject, and uh the book, No Crooked Death, and it refers to Zachariah Walker's last words, uh, was published in 1991, and then an anniversary uh, uh, update was published uh, in 2011. And it is a story that has never gone away, uh, either in my own professional development as a historian of race relations and I, I will say disability studies, uh, but it's never gone away in the history of Coatesville. It is a case of the past continuing to inform the present, as all good history should. Indeed, as I said, with Essie uh, May's memoir and all of the important events and people that she talks about, 
Zachariah Walker is the first person, the first kind of major event uh, that kind of gives you the lens through which she sees everything else. So hugely important event. Um, yes. Before we get started, uh, for folks who have not seen you or what have you, you are a white man. Is that correct, Dr. Downey? Yes, that's right. Uh, white male, age 69 now. Uh, and um, I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with my family. Our children are all raised. And I continue to write history and to advocate uh, on a variety of topics, uh, uh, including race relations, and I write a regular column for our uh, regional newspaper, among many other things. Right on, right on. Uh, for this program, context of white supremacy, uh, one, words are super important. Uh, and I've concluded when people talk about race relations or Zachariah Walker or J. Strom Thurmond or school desegregation, all of this, we are talking about racism, white supremacy. I use these two terms as synonyms and I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Well, I think such a system exists. Uh, I would uh, not include myself, I hope, uh, in that uh, mentality or that behavior and have dedicated much of my professional life to uh, not only uh, trying to clarify the historical roots of systemic racism, but also combating it. Um, but certainly it is global in its dimensions and it has a particular relevance in American history. Uh, and the current controversies over uh, uh, the meaning of white supremacy, critical race theory uh, are equally relevant and oftentimes misunderstood. So your point is well taken. Uh, but I, I seek an alliance with all people of goodwill uh, on this topic. Right on. Uh, you did uh, agree, although you said that you are, as a white man, not uh, a part of that in thought and or action. Uh, do you think it is logical for anyone classified as not white to be suspicious of any person who is classified as white, including yourself, as long as the system of white supremacy exists? I do, and I think that uh, it requires careful uh, uh, social analysis and uh, uh, kind of deep probing. probing. I'm suspicious myself of um, uh, the ready use of... Uh, language and vocabulary to separate and divide people. So uh, I agree, but with that caution in place that uh, um, 
you know, I, I affirm Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of the beloved community, something we've never quite achieved, but it is a vision worth uh, seeking. Mm-hmm. Uh, before, I guess, we get to uh, No Crooked Death specifically, uh, you used the term in the book and you used it in the broadcast already uh, with regards to, you said you affirmed, yes, it's reasonable, logical to be suspicious of anyone classified as white. Uh, you said using words to divide. I have concluded that one of the chief ways individuals who are classified as white who practice white supremacy racism deliberately is to use words to deceive obfuscate confound one of those that I pick out specifically the term race relations and I pointed this out in because it's very popular Uh, I can think the late uh, James Lowen uh, who wrote many books but when we read Sundown Town also in the book club I thought she would be familiar with it he uses race relations in that book a lot and I said now you gotta be joking now we're talking about signs billboards not signs billboards that say read nigger and run and you're gonna say that that's race relations we're talking about entire towns being purged of black people and that's race relations that's what I mean about and that's you that term is very popular I've concluded that, hey, that is not an accurate term. It shouldn't even be used if we're talking about a power dynamic of white supremacy racism. Uh, Is what I said logical? What are your thoughts, Dr. Downey? No, I think so. In fact, uh, I I once had a rather spirited conversation with Jim Lowen uh, about his book on black towns and we did not exactly see eye to eye on some of his assertions, uh, but I think that uh, there's no doubt that there's a, a deeply ingrained systemic or institutional racism that informs American history and the American experience. And all one has to do is to follow the news carefully today to realize that and Controversies over the 1619 Project, uh, controversies over critical race theory, which many people simply uh, don't understand, but they've grabbed onto the, uh, that phrase as a way to dismiss it, uh, are very important. Um, here in Pennsylvania, we have our own battles um, in a number of school districts that are seeking to dismiss any book that... Uh, uh, wants to treat race as a uh, systemic issue and problem in American history. They, they want those books banned. And uh, so to deny the reality of systemic institutional racism and systemic institutional uh, race violence, uh, to deny that is simply to be uninformed I just want to point out for listeners uh, well this will come up about informed we got that that'll come down though I just want to point out I've concluded it's not that white supremacy racism is ingrained and informs how we talk about its 
what I said in the de uh, definition, individuals classified as white are dedicated to racism, white supremacy. And that's why these things continue to happen in terms of obfuscating. You're not allowed to talk about racism, white supremacy. Some of that even comes up in no crooked death. But we, the main one, though, whew, talk about that all the time, about suggesting that white people are unaware or uninformed 13 years we've discussed that also I've been saying system of white supremacy racism not systemic racism institutional racism we've pointed out there's a major difference in that as well uh, getting to and if I could make a request one well, of the ways that I've concluded that white people deliberately practice white supremacy racism is by deviating from the question and going into tangents because you went into critical race theory twice already and I haven't asked anything about that and I'm not going to ask you anything about that so I would really appreciate it if you could answer specifically the question that I ask uh, and you can give us all the detail you want but without a lot of tangents and things that aren't really related because there's so much great detail in No Crooked Death I want to see if we can cover as much as possible but is that an acceptable request Dr. Downey? Well, it is. Uh, and if I could just add that my point was that people who are not knowledgeable or deny these realities in American history are uninformed and oftentimes have uh, more devious agendas. So it's, it's the lack of knowledge that I was referring to uh, for whatever reason. Uh, but yes, Again, that is important, suggesting that someone has a lack of knowledge about white supremacy racism, but we will get to that directly in the text as we proceed. Uh, I want to kind of give folks a, a rough outline because if people in the book club, uh, Zachariah Walker, like Essie Mae Washington, does kind of give a, a brief sketch of the case and then we'll get into the details of the book I'll read a few passages and what have you listeners can dial in with questions if they have any um, but 1911 uh, black male a worthless Negro from Virginia uh, has come to Coatesville uh, to get a better life warmth of other sons folks can remember Isabel Wilkerson the great migration uh, so he comes to Pennsylvania uh, to get a better life steel industry is doing well and what have you uh, and so this has been a problem they've had an increase in black people to this part of town uh, allegations of lawless drunken behavior Mr. Walker is accused this August night of being drunk uh, and for a prank firing his weapon over the head of two uh, passerbys down the road uh, they run off. Uh, Mr. Rice sees this. Uh, he's employed as a security guard uh, for the local mine uh, area. He sees this. He's not on duty as an officer or he gets reported all this. He goes, he confronts Mr. Walker. What are you doing? What's going on? Did you fire that weapon? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and Mr. Walker ends up saying, hey, back up off me. What are you doing? What are you doing? He's trying to arrest him and he ends up shooting and killing uh, Mr. Rice. Uh, obviously, folks are furious. Mr. Rice was beloved in the area uh, they eventually corner Mr. Walker uh, it's reported that he shoots himself in the head uh, doesn't die the mob takes him to the hospital lots of reports of we should kill this nigger we should kill this nigger can't believe he did this he killed Mr. Rice eventually thousands uh, 
could be 4,000, could be more uh, of white people come. They snatch him out of the hospital. They build a fire, burn to death uh, on a Sunday uh, where lots of folks, women, children, men, watch this whole spectacle. In fact, I can give give you a concluding line from all of this that transpired again on a Sunday. Uh, our guest, Dr. Downey, he writes, the story is told that on a hot summer's day, not long after the lynching trials had ended, a group of white boys was playing ball in a field near the east end of Coatesfield. A young black child was playing by himself at the opposite end of the same park. When the boy saw the youth, they approached him and threatened to start a fire and burn him alive, just like Walker had been if he did not leave immediately. The black child fled in terror, leaving behind a group of white boys who laughed with delight at their prank. Some pranks are funnier than others, I guess. Is that a, a rough? Again, we'll get into the details uh, in the text, but is that kind of a rough outline of what happened uh, in 1911 with Mr. Walker's lynching? Well, it, it is. Um, uh, let me just add that the next morning after the uh, the lynching, young boys sold body parts on the street corners in downtown Coatesville as souvenirs and relics. Uh, and I can imagine nothing more uh, 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 hideous or gruesome um, than that fact that, like the morning newspaper, they sold pieces of his body. Uh, and I talked to a man uh, who carried Zachariah Walker's finger in his pocket. He was a young boy. So his father found out what he had and made him throw it away. Uh, so there are levels of brutality, levels of terror, levels of just sinister uh, uh, violence uh, that permeate this uh, lynching as they do all lynchings. Wow. Uh, I'm just pointing out for uh, cows now. <laughs> Now, that is one. I don't know how you can be uninformed if you have a nigger's finger in your back pocket for days at a time. But for cows listeners who've been listening for at least a few months, this is the second time we've heard from a white guest who's spoken with someone about a Negro finger being kept as an heirloom not even six months ago we heard this before we'll get to that and listeners should keep in mind at least Dr. Downey told me that hey this book is hard to get in the library folks should keep that in mind as we proceed because again I had to thank God the university libraries opened again it was closed so long during COVID or we wouldn't have even had this program today. Reading. Um, may I add that yes, to sir. this day, to this day, you may not check this book out of the local library in Coatesville. It is prohibited from circulation. Keep that in mind as we kind of go over the details in the text. Now, why would that be? Hmm. Continuing with No Crooked Death, so this one I thought it... <laughs> As I've said repeatedly, Zachariah Walker, Gusty Renegade, both thought of as 
a worthless Negro from Virginia. Now, I read what you have. This is on page two of the text. Now, I heard this refuted widely by white people in Virginia saying that is a lie and people are just trying to disparage this area. You write the phenomenon of lynching is as old as the American nation, although some accounts refer to lynch law in 15th and 16th century England and Ireland. The expression Lynch's law is associated with a brand of frontier vigilantism practiced in the back back country of Virginia and North Carolina during the late 18th century. Colonel Charles Lynch of Bedford County, Virginia, whose brother John founded Lynchburg, imposed on the region a self-fashioned rule of law in the closing days of the Revolutionary War to mitigate the disorder that surfaced in the absence of administrative courts. The punishments Judge Lynch and his companions meted out to Tory sympathizers, horse thieves, and petty criminals were controversial and after the war they were held accountable for their actions among the officials who were critical of lynch was wartime governor thomas jefferson hmm many things in common lynch was subsequently exonerated by the virginia legislature but the type of justice he had practiced became known as lynch's law so this attributable to this particular area of the country in Virginia, no less. Oh my, and even pause for our former governor, the coon man. Ah, I wish he was still there, but this is, this is accurate. This is not some mythology that you've made up to smear the Commonwealth. Oh no, it's, it's, it's well documented. And, um, um, there's no question about it. And, uh, during the American revolution, you know, the, the administration of justice broke down in the midst of the war. And so local folk uh, created their own system, which became known as Lynch's Law. They became uh, not only the prosecutors, but judge, jury, and uh, enforcers. Uh, it, it was extra legal. It was beyond the formalities of law. Um, and so the, the tradition or the custom of lynching oftentimes is sought to date from this phenomenon. But after the Civil War, it takes on a far more sinister and racial characteristic uh, uh, after emancipation. And there are numerous explanations for why that's so. Lynching becomes more prominent when African-Americans achieve freedom and they achieve the rights of citizenship and the right to vote. It became a way to intimidate people. Uh, and it is what uh, the black liberation theologian James Cone called the terror moment. Uh, using terror to intimidate and lynching was, as the Emmett Till bill says today, it was a hate crime. Hmm. On uh, page three, this is in the introduction. So this is kind of laying the foundation for your work. Uh, you write that after 1880 lynchings assumed after the civil war assumed an overtly racial character with nearly 80% of all victims 
being black males, especially after 1900 when the average number of lynchings per year began a slow decline. The percentage of racially motivated lynchings in the South increased to over 90% of the national total. And I just I thought this was important for so many reasons. And I've even pointed this out in Essie Mae Washington Williams book where this is her memoir. Such an important story. Tragic. And we'll talk about your work with uh, her offspring as well. But I mean that it starts with Zachariah Walker. She goes to the lynching of Willie Earl. Uh, she talks about the Orangeburg massacre. There are so her husband Julius dies at 46 years old. <laughs> like she, she, yes. she talks repeatedly about broken, unemployed, down and out black males throughout her. It's oh, it doesn't matter where she goes. Black males that can't get a job and are no count down and out and alcoholic, including her husband who had a law degree. At, at any rate, but we have interviewed LaShonda Crowe Storm. She is with the Lynch Quilt Project, where she talks about the lynchings of black females. Very important. Yeah. Uh, and we've also talked about Leo Frank and other individuals who were horse thieves and all the rest. 80% of the lynchings being black males. This should be talked about as gender specific targeting of black males like that's the way that we should think about and frame our understanding of lynching not deviating because I've had so many times where people that did you know about Leo Frank and did you know white people were 80% of the lynchings were black males not even thinking about lynchings as something targeting black people gender specific targeting of black males. Your thoughts, Dr. Downey? I, I think you're absolutely right. And um, there's no question that uh, the overwhelming majority of victims were not only African-American, they were males. And they were, uh, by proportion, males in the South. And it's not by accident that this occurs after citizenship and black male suffrage uh, is ratified in the 15th Amendment. It, it, there is a potential for a, a power transformation in the South, and the use of violence to prevent that uh, uh, is very significant. And the fact that black males voted uh, during Reconstruction, after the ratification of the 15th Amendment, uh, is very significant. It's not by accident that all of this begins to turn towards a more sinister and overtly racial phenomenon after Reconstruction concludes. And that helps to explain some of the dynamics of the great migration out of the South to places like Coatesville and Chicago and Detroit and out West and elsewhere. But it is, it is gender specific and uh, we should not take the exception to distract us from the, from the general phenomenon that black males were the targets 
of lynching in the overwhelming majority of cases. Mm. Context of white supremacy, our guest co-author of No Crooked Death, uh, Dr. Dennis B. Downey. Uh, One of the components that I think uh, that is super important. We'll come back to that in a number of ways. But one of the components that I think also gets uh, deliberately uh, obfuscated and uh, the focus will be to white men, uh, the importance of white women. And we've even talked to a number of our guests about white women's roles at these lynchings. Uh, And you have a passage I just want to share with the listeners. This is on uh, page 38, that quiet Sabbath evening. Even that is not Sunday, Sabbath evening. Uh, You write, among those who watched the departing crowd was a group of teenage boys who had been quite close to the fire doing walkers ordeal. They were loudly expressing their approval of the spectacle and could not help agree with a man leaning against the fence who exclaimed, by God, boys, we made a clean job of it. One of them suggested that they all go to the Coatesville Candy Company since this was something of on holiday occasion and get a cold soda to satisfy their thirst while they discussed the evening's events as they set off the town clock struck 10 after two drinks apiece the boys went home for Monday was a work day one newspaper reported that 5,000 men women and children had stood by and watched the proceedings as though it were a ball game or another variety of outdoor sport. The Coatesville record noted the politeness of the crowd with men stepping aside to allow women and children a better view of the burning. Other newspapers stated that there had been as many women in the mob as men and that not a single voice had been raised that night in protest. Approximately 150 individuals maintained an all-night vigil near the fire waiting to collect souvenirs. Some of the more aggressive among them used fence railings to dredge walkers' bones from the glowing embers. The manacles and footboard were also pulled from the pyre and then doused in water and broken as souvenirs. The next day, several enterprising boys even sold some of Walker's remains to an anxious customers in Coatesville. Visitors have carried away anything that looked like a souvenir. On Monday morning, Mrs. Ann Rice, widow of the dead policeman, indicated her satisfaction with the events of the previous evening. She admitted to reporters that she had begged in quotes to accompany the mob but that several men had insisted she remain at home I would have done anything to have got near him Walker but they would not let me she declared I wanted to apply the match I wanted to see him burn When told of Walker's demise, Widow Rice expressed no remorse. 
in her opinion, he got just what he deserved. Worthless Negro from Virginia. Uh, Your thoughts on the role of white women? It can be in this specific lynching since it said they were equal participants or white women in general in these gender specific targetings of black males. Well, I I think that uh, um, it's important to know that um, uh, lynchings became, um, and and I'm not sure exactly how to say this, but they became social phenomenon that attracted large numbers of people. And um, many of the people who followed the mob in Coatesville were leaving Sunday evening church services. And this was a point that W.E.B. Du Bois brought out when he editorialized. So it was men and women, not only in Coatesville, but in 1903 in Wilmington, Delaware, an equally brutal burning lynching. And uh, I've studied lynchings all across the North. Uh, there was not a, uh, these were not male-specific audiences. And that oftentimes there was this air of uh, normality uh, within the crowd. It wasn't a frenzied mob. And uh, parents would put children on their shoulders so they'd get a better view. Uh, and we have some, some photographs of that. Uh, and uh, white women did not necessarily dissent, disagree with the actions of the mob, and oftentimes they were vocally supportive, as Mrs. Rice was after her husband was killed. Uh, So while the targets were black male more often than not, the mob could include anybody. Uh, I once got into a discussion with Neil Painter, who taught at Princeton about this. And she said, well, lynchings were men's work. And she said almost dismissively. But she had a point. The perpetrators were males. The victims were often, but not exclusively, males. And so there is this gender phenomenon uh, that just makes it very complicated. Uh, And white women oftentimes stood shoulder to shoulder with white men and watched the spectacle unfold. And you see this time and time again. Mm. Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, uh, She's uh, been a guest on this program. We discussed her book, The History of White People. I can only say, uh, I don't have to say anything. When they say a picture speaks a thousand words, there are too many photographs of lynchings with white women and children present for that to be accepted as true. What what are we to make of their, what are we to make of what Anne Rice said? In fact, I even brought up, uh, They've been mentioning Emmett Lewis Till's name with the lynching bill. What I found more interesting, even more important, there's no statute of limitation on murder. Hey, 
Carolyn Bryant Donham is still alive. Do you think she should be pursued as a perpetrator? You're absolutely right. And there is some uh, uh, some sentiment that she should. I think she's in her 80s now. And she gave a series of interviews to Timothy Tyson, who uh, published a book on Emmett Till. And that's really what re- that's, that was the circumstance in which she publicly revealed that she did not tell the truth. And as you say, there's no statute of limitation. And um, so there is some sentiment, but I would be surprised if there was any effort to prosecute her at this point. Uh, but, But she lives in Nashville or just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, in my view, she is a key perfect V. I mean, she was the instigator. And then uh, we had uh, guests on the program who talked about how she uh, had to be brought out to identify. Yes, this is the Negro child that she was there that night when they went to go and snatch him and castrate and mutilate and murder him and all the rest of it. Uh, they have snatched Nazis, Nazi war criminals who were older than Carolyn Bryant Donham. So, hey, if we're saying particularly if we're going to be invoking his name for this anti-lynching bill, then, hey, let's get to it. In fact, she should be the first one prosecuted if it's going to be named after him. But that is a different text uh, that we've already discussed. Uh, In addition to white women, I think this is so critical because for years they have said the talk black parents have to talk to their black children about the police and racism. And I've said for years, just like saying that, Hey, white women lynching is white men's work. That's not true. Saying that black parents talk to their children about racism, like in a widespread general manner, that is not true. Looking at white parents though. Oh man. They talk to their children about racism that is communicated and taught and there's so many illustrations I feel like I've read quite a few of them already but make sure I include one more before we get this because this is something that has come up many many times uh, through the years where we've had scenes of children participating and that's another way you can't say white people are uninformed or ignorant about racism if they're coming out and participating in lynchings at five, six, ten, let's see, let's get one from the book specifically. This is uh, page one forty-five. Oh, oh, oh! Wait a minute, make sure I get all of it. Yes, page one forty-five. Here we go. Oh. Keep in mind, this book he said not easy to access. Why would that be? He writes, the average steel town in the early 1900s was clearly a man's place. As one scholar has observed and expressions of physical prowess and violent behavior by the young men in the town were symbolic of their coming of age. Manhood could be assumed. 
it had could not be sorry manhood could not be assumed it had to be demonstrated to be earned and defended when challenged a man's status in society was confirmed in the company of other men and the reputation for toughness and a willingness to stand up to a challenge were prized attributes no man wanted to be branded a coward perhaps the worst insult he could suffer at the hands of other men significantly nearly half of the defendants in the lynching trials were under the age of 21 and numerous observers had stated that the teenage boys at the front of the mob were the most agitated and had to be cautioned by older men in the crowd to temper their bravado lest they attract the attention of the police for the young men who participated in the burning of Zachariah Walker and then bragged openly of their accomplishment the events of August 13 served as a rite of passage a ritual in which they asserted their manhood by the public display of vengeful force can you talk about the educational role that participating in these lynchings served for white children well, I, I think that, um, um, let me uh, just say, 15 people are indicted and prosecuted, um, 12 of them for uh, uh, killing Zachariah Walker, murdering him, and two, two policemen for involuntary manslaughter than the chief of police. Uh, I, I think that... Uh, if you've ever been to a steel town or to a coal town, these small industrial settings, uh, uh, particularly early in the 20th century, they were tough places. And one uh, had to demonstrate one's uh, prowess. Now, you know, that's, that's a volatile uh, uh, factor and add into it the overt racism um, that is uh, in, inherent in this behavior. And you can see how parents and their children, how the white community oftentimes came together to justify and then to dismiss uh, the actions of the mob. And children are, uh, and teenage boys um, are following the lead of adult males throughout this uh, incident, throughout that Sunday night. Uh, and by every account, and I've read through the a long, three-volume grand jury report, as well as the trial transcripts. By every account, it's the teenage boys who are the most agitated, the most vocal, and it's the older men who are telling them to, you know, control themselves. They don't want to attract the uh, uh, the attention of the police. Uh, they, they want to succeed at the task that they set themselves to. Um, 
So, you know, there is a, a degree of public education in this whole incident, and it's self-reinforcing uh, within the white community. Mm. I'm reminded uh, of Blood at the Root, uh, the book on the Forsyth purge uh, of black people early, your period of time, early 20th century. Yes. And they sent uh, a team of black. That's in Jane Lowen's sundown towns as well. I point that out regularly because this is not an anomaly. This is regular uh, where white children are participants. As you said, get up on my shoulders. Look at what they're doing to the Negro, that sort of thing. And in foresight, they sent a team of white children out to go tell the black people, hey, you got 10 hours to vacate or else. I mean, that is why James Lowen, he even talks about how it was gangs of white youths who were the ones who patrolled frequently in sundown towns. They would go and get their slingshots and nigger knockers and all the rest of it. And what what are you doing here? Ah, Get out of here. And they would chide for rocks and all the rest of it to make sure you. And that's, again, why I put up race relations. Come on now. Uh this is one of the more stunning passages that I found in the book. I speak all the time. It is so inaccurate. It is inaccurate as Dr. Nell Irvin Painter saying that lynching is white men's work. It is the same level of inaccuracy when people say, well, we can't talk about racism without talking about class and all the rest. And I've said for 13 years plus whites constitute a class to themselves in the system of white supremacy. This is directly from the text. No cricket death. Uh, So this is the chapter on American tragedy on page 40 uh, of the text kind of midway down or at the bottom of the page. The lynching of Zachariah Walker had a profound effect on the community bringing to the surface conflicting loyalties that were tied to the very nature of the social circumstances that surrounded the crime. Certain boundaries were ingrained in the everyday life of the borough and in the weeks and months that followed the lynching these boundaries were at least partially redrawn as residents attempted to come to terms with what had happened it makes no sense however to interpret walker's death from a class perspective if anything the lynching transcended class lines judging from the occupational backgrounds of Walker and those identified as witnesses and perhaps participants there is no evidence to suggest that the more well-to-do or better positioned residents had a different attitude about the episode than the average puddler in the mill those who did have qualms of conscience or who were embarrassed for the community resigned themselves to the same silence in public that afflicted most of Coatesville's citizens. No one came to Walker's defense either during or after his ordeal. One of the more striking consequences of the lynching was the degree of solidarity it forged among native whites and the immigrants this is not to suggest that longtime residents suddenly embraced the newly arrived Europeans, 
but newspaper accounts and other sources indicate that in the weeks following Walker's death the harshness of rhetoric toward the white foreigners began to soften. The record and Chester County newspapers still reported instances of wayward behavior by foreign element in Rock Run and Burnett Bernard Town, but the articles were less frequent in number. At the same time, the folk customs and traditions of these people were presented in a more sympathetic light, no longer the crude practices of primitive outsiders. In December 1911, the record commented favorably on the holiday festivals, festivities being observed in Rock Run and the Spruces, characterizing the immigrants as possessing something of a childlike innocence that only required a degree of detached amusement to appreciate. This was a new spirit of tolerance by a local press that had previously vilified the transplanted European population for its disruptive conduct. In time, these same Europeans and their descendants would be praised for their diligence and their acceptance of the work ethic, a far cry from the sentiments that greeted their arrival in the borough. There were immigrants in the crowd the night Walker was burned to death. But aside from a rumor that circulated the following day, August 14, no immigrant was ever suspected of being involved in the plot to seize Walker, and after the lynching, no statement of protest, no comment of any kind, came from the immigrant communities, though some native white residents did fear that the foreigners might divulge information during the investigation. Despite their common plight with the southern blacks in Coatesville, the immigrants, including those who may have been troubled by the lynching, saw nothing to gain in coming to Walker's aid. The lynching forged a hitherto unknown unity among the disparate elements of this industrial community's white population, race, not class or ethnicity, determined how white inhabitants responded to turmoil not easily accessible in the library. Hmm. To well, you, you, I just wanted to you, say you those are them. two super important points yeah. and then I'll hush class and the immigrants. Cause I hear that all the time. Just if you could speak to that and I will hush proceed, Dr. Downey. No, sir. You have hit on the heart of the matter. Uh, our uh, analysis and our, our position in the, the scholarly debate over uh, lynching was precisely as you read it, that this was where race triumphed over class and other considerations, as opposed to other historians who have said that really it's class dynamics and it's uh, uh, and that race is a disguise uh, uh, for really underlying class antagonisms. We didn't find that. Uh, so you're absolutely right in what you read, that our position was that race, not class, explains this entire sequence uh, from start to finish. 
And the other very important point, as you as you read it, is that uh, the subject of immigration was very controversial. Now, this is Southern and Eastern European immigration at the turn of the 20th century. It was very controversial in Coatesville, and the immigrants were vilified. But in the aftermath of the lynching, that tone and perspective changed. And the, the threat, the malefactors, now became these Southern black migrants like Zachariah Walker who are leaving the South. So you have these migrations that are colliding. And when push comes to shove, uh, different elements of the white community are coming together and they are further alienating um, the African American community, and it's—I um, mean—that's that's the core of our analysis in in a lot of respects. So race matters, I guess. Mm. White simply. White supremacy, racism. I've said that consistently. I hear that class thing come up consistently, and exactly as you wrote it out here. Whites constitute a class to themselves. That doesn't mean that they don't have arguments, fights, mistreat each other. Absolutely. But when it comes to the Negra, they seem to coalesce amongst themselves. Put those those differences are greatly minimized until we deal with the Negra. Uh, I see folks have uh, hands up. We'll take a few questions uh, and dig into some more of uh, no crooked death exactly quoted from the victim Zachariah Walker uh, before I get to our caller at 2262 other folks if you have a question for Dr. Dennis B. Downey the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, let's see our caller 2262 did you have a question for Dr. Downey you should be with us have you heard yes sir thank you Gus for taking my call I appreciate the broadcast and Dr. Downey thank you so much for spending a little of your time with us um, <clears throat> my question my first question will be um, who do you who do you think is more confused about racism after reviewing some of your work? Uh, white people or non-white people? Say the last part, it broke up on me. Uh, you asked who is more confused about racism and then what was what followed? Yes, sir. Uh, who is more confused about racism, white supremacy? After reviewing a little bit of your work that we just have, who was more confused, white people or non-white people? Oh, I, I think white people. Um, I, I, I think that and confused is a is a generous word to use, uh, but uh, I, I think that um, um, there there is an absolute unwillingness to confront the reality of racism and white supremacy and 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 violence in American history, and it comes largely from um, the group that perpetrates rather than the victims. Mm. 
thank you for your response. Um, I, my next question would be, from your studies, have you come to a conclusion about what white culture is? Well, you know, th there is this, this notion of whiteness, and uh, I am um, cautious in, in uh, using that uh, expression because it assumes a, almost a universal solidarity that I don't uh, always find present. Uh, but there is something to the notion of white privilege. Uh, and that um, uh, throughout American history, uh, particularly when you look at uh, lynchings, um, our, our subject for tonight, uh, uh, the uh, uh, African-American or, or black population is more often the victim uh, and the white population is more often the perpetrator. But I, uh, uh, um, I'm cautious to to overly generalize about uh, the expression whiteness or uh, white uh, white culture because there are significant differences within that general population, um, all of which is to say the study of history, like. Can, uh, the study of contemporary life is very complicated. Okay. Um, and my final question uh, will be, um, considering the history and the persistence or dedication of white people, what do you suggest non-white people do in response to produce a overall solution or a final solution to white terrorism? Well, I, I don't know that it's a, um, that it's a, um, a, a burden or a phenomenon that uh, uh, non-white people have to carry or carry by themselves. Uh, there's a power dynamic in all of this. And I think that uh, what you, what you need are, um, uh, people of diverse backgrounds to come together in a, creating a common front of justice and equality and taking action, not just speaking words or language, but taking action to build a more constructive uh, future than we have experienced in the past. Part of it is legislative. Part of it is just the basis of community relations and how people interact with each other, how the police interact with others. Um, and it's uh, building that foundation of common um, interest. But non-white people don't have to carry that burden. Oftentimes they have been, the, uh, uh, as I said, the victims. Okay. Um, Gus, I did have one last question, if it's okay. Last question. Thank you. Um, Dr. Downing, um, uh, your response made me think of um, 
what are you willing to, I guess, sacrifice or contribute to ending this type of terrorism globally uh, for once and for all? Well, that's, that's a great question, and it's 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 not one that deserves a, a flippant answer, but I think that by uh, writing good history, I've tried to... Uh, uh, to uh, witness, and I've also been involved at the community level uh, in a number of different kinds of initiatives. And something that we have not gotten to tonight is for the last 10 years, I've worked uh, in the area of disabilities and uh, trying to advocate uh, for people with disabilities. And uh, But I think that the the common ground is that uh, I've tried to take public stances and take public action uh, to uh, uh, speak on behalf of uh, other folks and challenge those who are um, irresponsible in their their statements. And I think that uh, uh, in terms of what I'm willing to sacrifice, and willing to sacrifice uh, um, my public reputation and my uh, whatever public standing I have to try to do the right thing. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. I'm sorry? Sound effect that we've had for years. Did that answer your question, uh, sir? Yes, sir. Thank you so much for um, coming on the broadcast, Dr. Downey. And thank you. Greatly thank you, Gus. I'll meet my line. Yes, thank sir. Thank you. Uh, the caller 1159. 1159. Did you have a question for Dr. Downey? You should be with us. Greetings, and um, greetings to the um, guests. Thank you for being uh, here and sharing your time with us. Uh, my question is... Um, Guess, do you have a um, probably a step-by-step um, of suggestions of how um, non-white people can get white people to stop practicing racism? Well, I, I think that um, uh, we need. Uh, uh, well, immediately I thought of Reverend Bailey, North Carolina, but we need courageous leaders who can speak on behalf of uh, uh, people and challenge those in power to uh, um, uh, humanely and uh, forcefully uh, uh, address uh, issues of racism and uh, systemic violence and then hold them accountable and um, I'd, I'd, I'd think there's, you cannot underestimate the value of good and informed uh, leadership. And um, uh, sometimes it's, it's the politics of the street. It's taking to the street to express one's political position. Um, but ultimately, it's about accountability. 
we've seen this with um, any number of recent incidents, including George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, um, uh, any number of other incidents. But uh, there are, and I'm a person of faith, so I oftentimes look to people in a faith tradition rather than uh, a mere political position to provide that element of uh, of witness. Can I ask another question, Gus? Proceed. Um, do you think that like white people and non-white people as individuals should be doing something to end racism? If so, what should those things be? Well, I, I, I think that, um, you know, on an individual basis, um, there is um, the uh, the need for uh, 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 respect and dignity and uh, fair treatment and the creation of public policies and the advocacy of public policies that allow for economic and social and um, uh, political um, cooperation as opposed to the kind of polarization that we've been experiencing for years, which is just uh, mutually and collectively destructive. So um, I think that... Uh, on an individual basis and then on a communal basis. It's uh, um, respecting and uh, showing dignity to people, listening oftentimes rather than speaking and then advocating for uh, policies and laws and programs and uh, that promote human decency as opposed to... Uh, the old world that's out there now. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of work. The conference has been locked. Did that answer your question, sir? Um, I don't think it did, but um, if, if that's his answer, then that's his answer. The conference has been unlocked finger slip sorry about that uh i just want to insert uh when we talked about the importance of uh words and dr downey agreed in terms of being suspicious and probing with suspicion and being mindful of what words are being used for years on this broadcast i have encouraged non-white people like metaphors be alert about the use of metaphors because frequently they obfuscate deceive cause confusion and I've said consistently racists use a lot of metaphors deliberately to cause confusion when we started I said Dr. Russell he was using the term separation not white supremacy racism and I said if it's separation Strom Thurmond get your penis out of that 15 year old if it's separation that's not what we have here uh, in your responses Dr. Downey you said, when he was asking for what are ways that we can stop white people from practicing racism, white supremacy, and you said 
taking it to the streets, holding people accountable, fair legislation, and you talked about the so-called polarization that we have now. That's all of that is just rhetoric that I would expect from someone who is not being serious, especially when being asked direct question, what are ways that we can stop someone from practicing white supremacy racism? And they're saying polarization, take it to the street rhetoric. That's the sort of thing that I point out with non-white people about metaphors, because non-white people use a lot of these metaphors. But this is just the common empty rhetoric, I might add, uh, when people talk and they're not really serious about solving the problem of not white privilege, the problem of white supremacy, racism, as defined at the beginning of the broadcast. We had agreement on the definition. May, May I just say you don't know me. You don't know how I have spent my life and what I do. That's uh, correct, sir. Hang on, hang on one second, because we have other folks who have. That's absolutely correct, sir. I could be in error, but I am just evaluating the words that you've chosen and rhetoric, taking it to the streets. Is is the slave plantation polarized? Is the slave ship polarized? Is the Nazi oven polarized? That's what I mean. It's just. At any rate, we do have other callers, so I want to get to them uh, as well. I do want to pause because there were a couple other important points from No Crooked Death that I think are important uh, before we deviate Zachariah Walker. So I'll get our other listeners. That's what I said about deviation. Getting uh, to No Crooked Death, you talk in the text. You have a number of passages where... How would I even describe it? Consumption. That's the only way I could. That's the best word for unless you could tell me a better one. You talk about the consumption of Mr. Zachariah Walker. It comes up in a number of ways in the text. The first time that it pops up, this is on page or one of the first times that I'm noting. I'll say it that way. This is uh, returning to the chapter that quiet Sabbath evening. You. This is when they're getting the white vigilante terrorists together to go do this burning of Mr. Walker. You write at this point, those men on the porch began to engage in a dialogue of demands with the larger crowd. We want more men. Someone shouted. Another taunting voice rang out. Would you stand down and see a black son of a bitch shoot one of your own men down? Are you all afraid? Have you no sand? Still another cried out for leadership. We want somebody else up here. We want the man who knows. Several people called out for a man named Tucker to lead them. Someone in the crowd on the knoll shouted impatiently. Come on. You got enough men up up there to eat him. Prompting the ply. We have very few men. They are all boys. We got that again. I'm skipping forward in the text to eat him. That's what they said. Skipping forward now. This is way later uh, in the book. This is on page 147, the chapter in American Tragedy. Uh, you write, perhaps the ultimate irony of this episode is that the honor of Coatesville was res- resurrected in Walker's charred and broken bones. People scratched in the ashes with bare hands for relics of a lynching of murderer a newspaper caption read and the record reporter at the scene likened the scavengers to 
a pack of hungry wolves after a morsel of food. So that's two, and it goes on, but that's two really... Well, ex- you're, you're quoting the newspapers. You're not quoting... Uh, if, you, if you look at the references, those are local characterizations of what's going on. Uh, that's great. Just so the listeners understand. Oh, yeah, that's totally great. Totally great. But the main point that I'm getting at is these references describing this with terms that we would think of for food. You have enough to eat him. And that's even better that that's how they were describing at the time. That's even better (laughs) Um, that they have enough people to eat him. And then they come back and like a pack. That's the metaphor that they likened it to a pack of hungry wolves after a morsel of food and again that's not as he pointed out that's not his metaphor that's the records metaphor of this conduct now I'm both of those and it comes up a few times in the text I look at all of that and I say wow what is one of the books it is in my top 10 Dr. Vincent Woodard's The Delectable Negro Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture immediately uh, it came to mind you know it comes up all the time with these lynchings but just the language that as you point out they chose from this time period to describe this eating Zachariah Walker hungry wolves after a morsel of food consumption I just want to give two quick passages to kind of get your thoughts to see what you think about Uh, and the subtitle is human consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture, it could maybe even be, be replaced with white culture, going back to the caller's question. But Woodard in his text, this is uh, on page seven, the introduction, uh, he writes, scholars have reinforced this slave owning ruling class mentality and have helped to maintain a general code of silence regarding the master's appetite and sycophantic needs. This pattern of silencing has resulted in the dismissal of the reality of those enslaved persons who frequently described slavery as an outgrowth of the master's homoerotic and consumptive appetites. Within U.S. slavery, black men and women consistently described incidents of human consumption that occurred on literal metaphoric and institutional levels of social interaction these incidents often had a homoerotic or sexual charge to them john s jacobs for example referred to his former masters as human fleshmongers possessed of an unnatural hunger for human flesh and soul I'm stopping there just to get one more and then we'll I want to hear Dr. Downey's thoughts to this. This is on page 34 cannibalism in transatlantic context. He even has a chapter in here honor and human consumption. That word comes up in uh, no crooked death. Uh, But uh, Woodard, he writes importantly, both Williams and Patterson foreground the erotic and more specifically the homoerotic desires of masters that shaped and informed master-slave relations. Masters received a sexual high or erotic charge 
from consumptive acts, power and sex intertwined with the slave's body and sex serving not only the purpose of pleasure and erotic fulfillment, but also reinforcing master's authority, supremacy, and dominance. What do you think about how this would apply? I mean, these are, as you pointed out, these are the terms that they were using, eating him and wolves devouring a morsel of food. What do you think about the uh, human consumption component and the homoerotic? Because it even, when you talked about this being a rite of passage for these young white boys, that seems to tie, or am I messing that up? What do you think, Dr. Downey? Well, I, I'm yeah, several thoughts. One, you're referring to Orlando Patterson's works, just so uh, listeners understand where those references come to. And he's a, uh, uh, has written a number of very important uh, works on slavery, both in America, uh, slavery and social death, and also in the Caribbean. Uh, I'd also refer people to Joel Williamson's book, The Crucible of Race. He was the first to really uh, delve into this psychosexual dimension in uh, uh, to race or race relations, noting your, your uh, reservation about that phrase. Uh, so... <clears throat> I think that there, there is an element of truth, how far you push that, uh, how you interpret it, uh, is um, a matter of debate. Uh, but certainly when it comes, comes down to um, black women who were lynched and sexually violated, uh, there's a more... Um, common agreement on the, the psychosexual dynamics. But as Williamson shows, uh, it, it, it's a, a powerful force, uh, nonetheless, in, in many mob situations. Um, and remember, lynching begins to uh, increase uh, as the plantation system collapses and the whole economy and social order of the South is uh, being uh, sort of readjusted. But um, I'm, I'm not a, a psychotherapist, so I'm, I'm cautious in my, my use of language. Um, but I take, I, I take your point. Uh, sir, this is another one where I'd say you're deviating because I didn't 80 percent of lynchings are black males. So I'd have no idea how we moved back to lynchings of black females. And since we mentioned Emmett Till, he was castrated. That was very common. I mean, hey, now, what are we to make of that? That's not a psychoanalysis. That is a historical analysis. This is a statement of fact. And. What's talked about in the very passage that I read, just read, the silences where we don't even talk about 
the sexual violation of black males rethinking Rufus. We had uh, the author of Thomas Thomas Foster as a guest on the broadcast 2020 where this isn't even talked about or acknowledged. In fact, you have folks who will tell you scholars that only females can be raped. What are we to make of all of these castrations? And in fact, where sometimes that sexual violation happens, but it's not mentioned. Someone might tell you that they have a finger. They might not readily tell you that I have nigger testicles in the addict, but certainly with the number of castrations, that is true. That is, like I said, this well, is not, I'm not asking a psycho uh, a psychoanalysis, nor am I asking for concurrence. Just what are your thoughts, Doctor Danny? Because it seems this may have even happened with Zachariah Walker. Well, there's no doubt that in many lynchings, and I could go down a long list of them, uh, none more heinous than uh, Jesse Washington's lynching. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, there's no doubt that the victim oftentimes was castrated. Now, is that uh, simply a... Uh, 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 a physical denial of his personhood, his manhood? Is it something deeper? Is there some more uh, 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 problematic neurosis at work? Uh, you know, that's, that's something that we can uh, debate, and there are scholars who have written on this. Uh, if you look at the the lynching of Mary Turner in, in Georgia, uh, the horrendous things done to her body, as with males, the tremendous uh, violence done to their bodies, or Henry Smith in um, um, Texas in 1893, uh, just gruesome. The, um, the, there's, there's no doubt that there's a degree of uh, um, sexual denial of personhood. Uh, how far you take that is, uh, is um, you know, we may agree or disagree on that, but there's no doubt that uh, the mutilation of sexual organs and uh, was very much a part of these, particularly mass lynchings. This is one of them, particularly if you listen to this broadcast and the broadcast that we did just a few days ago, really, at the altar of lynching, the burning of Sam Ho's book I found in route to getting the text on Zachariah Walker that was in the lynching section. If you go back and listen in that response, it was very similar white people not even wanting to discuss part of that silencing helicopters my goodness military apparatus of white supremacy uh, I'll take a listener question until they pass over let's see our caller well uh, I, I, I've reviewed that book and it's and uh, so I'm very familiar with it as the case of Sam Hose um, and I, I think that uh, uh, You know, the, the issue of sexuality, uh, one of the things, well, put it this way, we haven't even talked about the rumors 
that persisted down to today that Zach Walker and Edgar Rice were competing for the affections of the same white woman. Um, and did that stir the crowd? Was that known or was that an apocryphal uh, story that was created after the incident to justify the incident? Uh, that's another, and we mentioned that in the book, but it hasn't been brought up here tonight. Very informed white person uh, on white supremacy, racism, very informed about lynching. So you know how widespread the castration component is that in my view, one of the ways that white people practice racism, white supremacy, just what gets talked about, what gets analyzed, what doesn't silencing. That was the word that was used in Vincent Woodard's text. Uh, let's see the well, before I get to him, one more that I think is also really important. Um, the role of the newspapers in yes. the role of the newspapers in all of this. And this is pretty words, words being so important. What gets focused on? What doesn't get focused on? How people talk, even how people remember uh, and think about events. No one does it better. Uh, this is page, let's see, page 99, uh, the chapter to humiliate the administration of justice. And then we'll get retired firefighter. Uh, despite their objections to the Commonwealth's involvement in the investigation, people began to call for the establishment of a state police headquarters in Coatesville to help curtail lawlessness led by its editor, the record reinforced the idea that lawlessness and violence were growing in the weeks following the lynching trials. The newspaper was replete with stories describing alleged violent crimes committed by blacks time. And again, these front page reports reminded readers that whites were often the victims of these crimes and that the perpetrators were drifters who had no ties to the community. Frequently, they appeared simultaneously with news of the latest developments in the lynching investigation or the pending trials. The cumulative effect was to present Southern blacks as a criminal element in Coatesville, a perception that seemed to justify the burning of Zachariah Walker very common. Can you talk about the role of the press in this case during and after the lynching? Surely. Uh, the press didn't just report the news, they created the news. And they created a popular understanding of what occurred and why it occurred. And uh, uh, in its very detailed coverage, it clearly uh, 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 not supported, but clearly justified mob action. Uh, and uh, it's all part of that shift in perspective that occurs from foreign immigrants as a criminal element to Southern blacks as a, a criminal element. And it all served to uh, uh, um, justify what happened to Zachariah Walker and um and I think that even SMA uh, Washington alludes to this, that, uh, uh, you know, as the black migration into Coatesville 
continued to build. It didn't stop in, uh, in the aftermath of the lynching. It grew. Um, there was a, a, a noticeable shift in emphasis towards the uh, antisocial behavior of black folks who were new to the community and particularly young black men. We talk about contemporary relevance. Uh, and so the paper became an advocate, not just a dispenser of news. It shaped how people understood uh, what occurred and why, just the way the media today has a deep influence on uh, people's understandings of uh, what occurred and why. So the record was was very much uh, an actor in all of this. Very the common. The record being the local paper. Yeah. Yes. Very common in many of these reports on white terrorism, either it's lynchings uh, and or entire purges of black James Lowen talks about that in terms of either not talking about the event at all uh, or talking about it in a manner so that it is justified uh, whatever has happened and even in fact James Lowen talks about sometimes even the newspapers vanish so that if you should go back and try to figure out what happened there's no record it's like dang did that even maybe it didn't happen maybe they're making all that up which they do say sometimes like it is amazing, but that is a very common pattern uh, with regards to racism, white supremacy. It's Absolutely. Like a- and it, I, if I can just say, to this day, you cannot check this book out of the library. Retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Dr. Dennis B. Downey? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. I uh, basically have two questions. Uh to the guests. Uh, question number one, uh, I think I heard you state that uh, white people are ignorant about racism, white supremacy. Uh, could you clarify that for me? What exactly are white people ignorant about when it comes to the global system of racism, white supremacy? Well, I, I, surely. Uh, I think that um, so much of this history is not taught in public schools. I've had over the years many people who lived in Coatesville, lived around Coatesville, were university students of mine. They said, we've never heard anything about this. Why didn't we know about this? And it's, it's not unlike the, the rhetoric of the Holocaust. You know, why didn't we know? So um, there, much of this is not taught, and it gets buried uh, in the public record and in the curriculum uh, because perception is that people are not celebrating, they are condemning American-American history by making this aspect of history more visible and uh, therefore making American history more complete. So if 
white people are aware of past practices of white people mistreating people based on color, they will stop practicing racism? No, I never said that. And, um, no, I'm asking you. I, I didn't say you said it. I'm asking you, would they stop because if they aware of this history? I, I think that this can be a, uh, that awareness is a constructive social tool, but it will not stop uh, uh, public or private racism and the behaviors that go with it. Uh, and we've had any number of court cases in just the last couple of years where uh, from Minnesota to Georgia to Louisville, Kentucky, and elsewhere. Uh, and it's it's not a matter simply of education. It's about cultivating uh, uh, social attitudes. Education. Can okay, because I, I, I want it clear on my I want it clear on the answer. So you're saying that by white people being informed of past practices of racism, it will not stop the system of racism, white supremacy from functioning. Uh, it, it will not in and of itself, no. But it can be okay. a constructive social tool. So it's, 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 it's irrelevant. Uh, okay, uh, question number two. Uh, it appears that you do work on you uh do some uh work in studying on racism white supremacy uh what is your ultimate objective for doing so well i I find these stories inherently interesting, and I also find that they have a certain social value and history as an act of remembrance and, uh, if you like, uh, an act of advocacy, trying to tell the truth so that we do not deny the truth, if that makes sense. Okay, I, I, I'm, I've, I've heard ver variations of white people stating about similar to what you're saying, but are, uh, but they, uh, you, you, I haven't heard one state that they are interested in solving the problem. Are you interested in solving the problem and are you attempting to solve the problem? Well, I yes or no? Yes. Can you? Okay. Uh, all right. So, what have you what have you done directly to other white people to solve this problem? Well, I was a university professor for thirty seven years, and I tried to uh, incorporate this element of American history into my classroom. I'm involved in a variety of ad advocacy groups that are committed to. Uh, equal justice under the law, and I have uh, advocated to our senators and representatives on matters of race and also disability. Uh, 
and I try to treat the people that I come into contact with with dignity and respect and uh, compassion. So I'm, I'm assuming that you're using, this is a question, I'm assuming that you're using the additive of educating white people about racism. And you already gave me the answer on on that uh, strategy, that it doesn't work. No, that was your conclusion. I said that it's a, it can be an effective social tool, but in and of itself. Does it work, sir? Yes or no? Yes, it does. It helps to improve the situation. Where is your evidence? Is the problem still here, sir? Sure it is. Okay. So it doesn't work. Well, it has not solved the enduring problem. It has not solved the enduring problem of racism in American life. No. Are white people coy or do you think they're just ignorant to racism? Or maybe is it is it they, they're just coy in pretending that they're ignorant? That's a question. I, I think it's probably both. There, there are a lot of people who just don't know their history, our national history. And there are other folks who use coded language and behavior and put up a certain social face but in their private behaviors they contradict that social face and um, we've had any number of politicians who we could point to who are the prime examples of that hang tight retired firefighter just want to make sure we get to some of the other folks who dialed in as well uh, let's see yes sir that was a long answer <laughs> go ahead go ahead Gus thank you yes sir <laughs> uh the caller uh, victim of racism in New Jersey. Uh, if you have a question for Dr. Dennis B. Downey, you should be with us, victim in New Jersey. Hey, how you doing, doctor? Um, I just wanted to follow up. Uh, how you doing? Uh, the um, uh, retired firefighter um, actual question that I was going to ask, but I guess I can frame it a different way about white people being more ignorant. Um, since you brought up CRT, um, and I suspect that the politicians that push the ban on CRT um, are being deceptive, do you think that's an example of uh, white people being ignorant about racism, this um, national push to label any form of uh, black history um, CRT? Yes, I do. I, I think that uh, uh, most politicians who are critical critical race theory have no idea of, of what it is, its origins, and uh, how it relates to uh, the reality of uh, race and racism in American history or American life. I, I just think they are uh, uh, they're playing a game, if you like. So they're being deceptive. I think so. Okay, so that's not. And and one one can be ignorant and deceptive at the same time. Okay. All right. 
Thanks for answering my question. <laughs> An individual classified as white does not need to know the history of critical race theory to practice white supremacy racism. <clears throat> Just making a statement. Uh, our I caller, agree with that. Non, it's logical. How could you not? Non Clemson grad, did you have a question for Dr. Dennis B. Downey? You should be with us. Um, good evening, everyone. I hope everyone's having a wonderful evening. Um, I heard earlier that the doctor said that um, potentially, I think you were referencing uh, non white, mostly black people, about getting in the streets to protest some of the things that black people experience. And my question to that is that do you encourage white people to do those kind of things, you know, get in the streets, protest, um, all the things that might, potential things that might come with that, which might, you know, sometimes lead to uh, um, violence, harm, death, property damage, and the like. And um, my, I personally think, well, I didn't hear the whole thing, but I'm, I'm not, well, I wonder if you encourage white people to do the same thing. And if you encourage white people to do the same thing about, you know, protesting what's happening to black people, do you think they'd be inclined to take your advice? And if not, why not? Well, let's start with that. Well, I, I am uh, not an advocate of uh, violence. But I am an advocate of street politics to make one's uh, beliefs and uh, positions known. But I am not an advocate of violence. And whether one is black, white, brown, whatever, I, I'm, and I did not come on this show to advocate for violence because then I end up where the mob is. And that's not me. Okay, I hear you, but I'm, I'm not sure if you understood the question. Um, but I understood part of your answer about like not advocating violence. Um, I wasn't trying to give. Uh, I, um, if I gave that impression, um, then that's my my fault. Um, what I mean is that um, for whatever policies you advocate to get to get people encouraged, particularly in the context of white people, do you think they would um, take you up on that advocacy? And second, if they do not, why do you think they choose not to? Um, you know, protests in the forms that you think are adequate and appropriate? Uh, speaking of white people, um, there may be a variety of motivations, including they may be racist. Um, you know, there are certain core principles upon which uh, um, our nation was founded, yet to be realized, and um, one of them is uh, equal citizenship. And that's a, a tough pill for a lot of uh, non-white people to swallow. Okay. Um, I think that's part of that answer. Um, okay, so if some of these people who you suggest, at least in the context of white people, might be racist, you know, racist being, uh, racism being a reason why they choose not to protest. Um, why even give the advice to black people? Wouldn't they by chance also be um, um, advocating potentially to, well, first of all, who would black people be advocating to? 
in your context, I, I think it would be like, for example, maybe governments, for example, and aren't government just as racist as the people um, that are white who might who you might um, potentially suggest to protest? Well, I, I wish that John Lewis or Elijah Cummings were here to answer that question. I wish that Rosa Parks was here to answer that question. There are uh, enough examples uh, to point to the Reverend Bailey, North Carolina, and others uh, who are have effectively witnessed to peace and justice and rights without a resort to violence. And they have been effective uh, agents of change in American history. And... Um, you know, I, I, I think I'm of John Lewis and Selma and his courage. Mm, okay. Now, I, for example, let's see, John Lewis, I believe he marched with Dr. King, and I believe he also suffered a uh, busted head when he was advocating with the good doctor um, back did. during the uh, Yes. Dr. King was not um, there. I'm sorry, say it again, sir. Dr. King was not there at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in the first March in 1965. He was oh, there for gotcha, the second Gotcha. But, you know, whether it be people like uh, John Lewis and stuff, you know, eventually, obviously, people like John Lewis, they ended up in Congress. They served uh, many years, even a couple of decades. Um, and they themselves, you know, while in Congress or, you know, elected office, they themselves were, were uh, unless I'm misinformed, were not very successful in advocating for the rights of black people. Um, so I'm, I'm a little left, I'm a little um, confused or wondering how that has really helped in that context then, not to take away from the efforts of those gentlemen, um, but outside of them simply getting into high office and maybe getting personal successes, I'm not really sure how that has been effective in helping to quell or change white people's disposition to uh, black people. Yeah, we um, obviously your book talks about the idea of lynching, but, you know, lynching, which was once upon a time a private venture, has simply just become a state venture in the form of uh, police sanctioned killings. And... Um, well, in my state of South Carolina, we just brought back the death penalty by, sh uh, by um, I think, shooting squad. And I forget the, the ele I think the election right. year. And you, get, and you get to choose yeah. between one of those two wonderful options, um, how you want to die or be killed. No, you, you're absolutely right. And, um, um, you know, in South Carolina, as in Pennsylvania, we have politicians who uh, are uh, manipulating uh, the legislative process judicial process to achieve those ends and what they what they end up doing is playing to people's prejudices and they are succeeding but I would not uh, dismiss uh, uh, John Lewis so quickly which um, is my view Oh, I know. wasn't trying to um, just Mr. John Lewis. Um, just trying to say that his efforts, uh, I'm not sure if it helped us to get the kind of results, at least that black people would see as appropriate for the situation and not, you know, 
a lot of people have tried um, and been unsuccessful. Not This is not to say that they should not try. This is just me saying um, I'm not sure if their efforts were as fruitful um, as black people would have hoped. And along those lines, and this will be my, my last question here, you know, with the idea of people, you know, taking umbrage with the idea of racism and, you know, doing what, um, taking up whatever they could within reason, hopefully not to be violent and stuff like that. Is there any reason to believe that white people would ever change their disposition um, toward black people? Or do you think for the foreseeable future, white people will continue to engage in the behavior that they have engaged in for centuries? Well, I don't, I don't lump everybody together, whether uh, we're talking about white people or black people. And I think well, I don't think it's are, all people, but nevertheless, um, it, um, whether or not it's um, all people or not, as a group, the out, um, the overall disposition of the group, even if not everyone is involved, leads to the same outcome of um, for black people in the greater society, whether or not it's all of them or not. Correct? No, and I, I agree with you on that. Um, and I, I think that... Um, uh, there is uh, little evidence to be had that things uh, uh, will change, whether it's uh, systemic problems of incarceration, uh, whether it's uh, urban crime and violence, whether it's uh, um, just the uh, um, voting rights. You know, we can go down a long litany. Uh, I see no evidence of uh, uh, any deep systemic changes on the horizon. But it doesn't mean oh. stop trying. Okay. Okay. How about this? Obviously, this is the advice you gave people, at least black people, I mean, I've missed part of it, about the idea of, you know, doing advocacy and stuff like that. Do you ever tell black people that you see no evidence that white people are going to change? Um, and that you should assume that white people as a group, maybe if it's not all white people, but the white collective are going to continue to engage in that type um, and, and racism and that black people in particular should proceed according to the idea that white people have no intention of changing. Wouldn't that truth be far more helpful than simply telling black people like, oh, there was a couple of black people that were helpful to history like um, um Congressman John Lewis or a couple of good white people, not to say that they didn't exist, but isn't the truth far more helpful than the, you know, the few um, very tertiary examples in history that you gave? No, I, I, I would not say that. And I, I, I would not uh, generalize in, in my own life experience uh, have uh, been fortunate, even blessed to know both black folks and white folks who take a a, a respectful uh, approach to each other. But I, I, it's not my place to tell black people what to think. Well, uh, and this is not me asking whether or not you should tell people black people what to think. Um, this is me asking you, based on what you, because you, because uh, I believe you said you study history, particularly with race relations and stuff like that. Um, I'm asking you, do you think it would be a more appropriate advice 
to tell black people based on your examination of history that there is no evidence that the white collective will change their disposition to black people in the practice of racism. Um, now, how black people take that, obviously, is up to them. Um, but, you, you know, does the, you know, does history show that white people have no intention of changing their disposition and therefore maybe black people should proceed accordingly for that reason, because based on history, not because of what you think, um, not because of what black people might think, what, you know, in that context, but because this is just your, you know, conclusion about what you've seen, what you've studied, what you've uh, learned through your um, studies and your research. Well, it's, it, it, is, it is not my conclusion, um, because I've seen in my own lifetime, I'm 69 years old now, there have been significant changes uh, that have occurred uh, in the, uh, the social and economic and political uh, uh, status of black people. And, um, you know, um, there are also serious threats to the hard-won victories that other people have achieved, whether it's the, the Civil Rights Act and uh, equal employment and fair housing and uh, acts of the 1960s or uh, uh, any number of other things. But there's, there's a certainly... At the moment, a deterioration um, in voting rights and in economic opportunity and other things. And by understanding the historical roots of that, hopefully it allows for more informed public policy. But I don't, at the moment, see evidence of that and would would not hesitate to say that, but I, I wouldn't go so far as to um, overly generalize about it. Gotcha. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. Thank you, Nan. And what's that? Uh, I just want to say, like, Dr. Downey, uh, I think that you are deliberately and in a really despicable manner practicing white supremacy racism and i think that you just flagrantly lied to us uh saying that you've seen change in the economic and social status of black people because i think you probably more so than anyone else on this broadcast know that black people's economic status whatever metrics you want to look at it has not gotten better (laughs) if you want to say change without improvement fine but by no metric has it gotten better to even waste our time with all of that is disgraceful and I think a deliberate act of white supremacy racism especially when the question was just asked hey tell black people the truth as opposed to all this nonsense hey white people the definition dedication to white supremacy racism but getting to uh, one of the points that I thought was I just want to get to my question sir about the book no sir no, sir, because I listened to your response. You weren't even truthful with your answer. I want to get to my question about the book in No Crooked Death. You specifically talked about spies, black people being used as spies, which I thought was important 
in the text. Uh, I'm going to point out for listeners the amount of rhetoric that I had listened to that informed the response that I just gave. Wow. It's rare that we have that sound effect that many times in a program. Buckets of words. Wow. How many pails are there? Uh, this is on page 118. No, sir. I want to read my question and then you can respond. I do not want to hear your reasoning. Thank you. On page 118, uh, you write. You're talking about John J. Chapman. So he comes uh, New York essayist, white man, suspected racist. He comes for one year anniversary uh, of Zachariah Walker's lynching. And he's going to do a, a ritual and uh, hold a visual for all of this. And uh, he says only two people come. You write, uh, a visitor to Coatesville and a black woman from nearby. I guess this is Haiti, H-A-Y-T-I, whom Chapman believed was a spy sent to see what was going on. Joined Chapman and his wife. Despite the minuscule turnout, Chapman delivered a powerful and persuasive speech in which he blamed the Coatesville lynching on slavery. There's no footnote here. Uh, why did he think that this black woman was a spy? Did you find any evidence to substantiate his suspicion? And that, that account that comes from the newspaper and John J. Chapman's papers. And the footnote reference is to the presentation that he made. And uh, let me just, if I might, and I'm trying to be courteous here because I resent how you misrepresented what I said. But let me just say that the NAACP becomes directly involved in this case and sends agents into Coatesville in an effort to dig up more information once the trials fail. It is on the one-year anniversary of the lynching that Chapman comes to town, and he gives his speech, and there are a number of people there, but it's largely an empty room. And it was suspected that one of the people was there simply to report back to the authorities what he was saying. Ergo, the word spies. But the NAACP sent its, its own undercover agents in in an effort to gather information. So let's be complete about that point. Even if we selectively misrepresent other things that I'm saying. When you say be complete about that point, what do you mean? Well, that the NAACP, which you haven't even really mentioned, took an active interest in this case. And when it was clear that the Commonwealth would not reopen the prosecutions after they failed, they sent agents into Coatesville. And they tried to gather information. Sir, what that does that have to do about Chapman's meeting? That's not noted uh, anywhere in the section that I read. That's what I said about no, what was the risk? What did I misrepresent in what I read no, in your statement here? The, the, the person was characterized as a spy. 
By whom? That's not listed here. Where did you get that? That's why I said it's not a, and it wasn't even an indictment. If there was a footnote, I would have read it, but you don't include any, where is that at? I had to go back into the book and I've been talking to you, so I haven't been paging through the book. 118. It's no footnote there. And again, I wasn't bringing that up for resentment or critique. I would have appreciated a footnote because I would have liked more detail, but I'm just pointing out that you're saying that she was a spy. Like, wow, that's interesting. I was bringing it up for a reason. It was reported. Okay. It's not listed where this was reported from. It would have been great to get additional detail, but the reason I'm bringing it up for listeners, great, include it in the footnotes. If there's an edited version, include that. But the reason I was bringing it up for listeners is that black people can be used as spies. What were you resentful about? Was it this? Me saying that there's no footnote? Is that what you were resentful about? No. It's, it's your... When you came back on after the last caller... Oh, okay. That's fine. That's all I need for clarification. Great. Okay. No problem. That's fine. If you're resentful about that, that's fine. Incidentally, there's a lot of background noise. Uh, I don't know if you're someplace with it's rowdy, if you could get to a... a no, it's your location. noise. It's not mine. I'm in a quiet, sequestered room. It's not mine. I find that difficult to believe because I've muted everyone else's line. But, all right, I pointed out when we had See, that right there, I don't have dishes. That's not me. That's not me. That's got to be coming from your line. At any rate. I'm sitting in an office and there's nobody else here. And I'm not doing dishes. This is starting the order I need to What what direction do you want to go when talking about this case? Let's see. Let's I will see. double check to make sure. I don't have man, like, because that's not coming. That is like distracting. Like, I, I does anybody? Uh, if if anyone whose line is open, you can speak up. If you're muted, I feel like I've muted everyone's line. Let's see. Now, there's feedback coming through, but it's not not from here. There's nobody else here. Okay. Let's see. Uh, you oh, I don't hear it now. I don't hear it. Yeah, that was disruptive. It's like, man, because there's dishes and things. I was like, man, what is going on here? All righty, great. Let's what, see. Where, uh, where are we going now? Thank you. The noise disrupted me. I can check back with my notes to make sure that I've covered all of the uh, topics. Incidentally, you did say. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't talk about SMA Washington. We did not. Incidentally, sir, it's not possible for us to talk about everything. I think you would know that. Like, it took me days to read the book. So, no, we're not going to be able to talk about every possible detail uh, of the book. We just cover what we can. I think I said that. I will pause. Speaking of Essie Mae Washington, how did you get involved with her daughter? Did she seek you out or did someone send you to her, vice versa? Nope. In fact, I spoke to her this morning, uh, most recently. She, uh, uh, through family relations, knew who I was. I uh, spoke at a a gathering of both Rice and Walker descendants and other people of Coatesville. And she learned of that and made contact. And uh, she was working on a manuscript of her own uh, more correct, correct version of her mother's story, Essie Mae Washington's story. She was not satisfied with Dear Senator. Um, and so for 
a month and a half, I helped her in structuring and writing uh, uh, her story, the daughter's story. When you say more, she sought me out. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, she sought me out. Okay. When you say more correct, uh, what what portions of Dear Senator are incorrect? No, she she was not. The book was ghost written. It was not written by Essie Mae Washington. Um, and uh, Wanda, who lives in South Carolina, was not satisfied nor were other members of the family satisfied with the, the narrative history as told. And they wanted to uh, fill in blanks and tell a more complete story of their mother, of their grandmother, her relationship with Strom Thurmond, and how it all unfolded over the years. And so she sought out my help. And I worked with her. When you say it was ghostwritten, what is what do you mean exactly? Well, if if you look at the book, it it is not written by Essie May. It is written by, and I'd have to go into my notes, but a popular author who was commissioned to write it. Uh, Steidemann? With her and for her. Hmm. So, John, but it's her story. Hmm. What? So, if I'm understanding you, this is one of those where, and, and this is this ghostwriter. Is this individual classified as white? John, uh, I think it's Steidemann. That might be mispronouncing it. Steidemann. Steidemann. Uh, I don't know him. I, I believe he might be white. Hmm. He's, a, he's a popular writer of nonfiction. Hmm. And so your view and having talking to Wanda and the family members, they were not pleased. They feel like the narrative as written is not accurate. And he did they think what, what would be the accurate term that he misrepresented? What would be the accurate term to describe what they think happened? Well, I, I, I believe her position is that he inserted too much of himself into the narrative and how he structured it um, in ways that ghost writers do. Uh, so he provided her with assistance and he went too far in shaping the manuscript. And so she set out to write her own story of uh, her grandmother, her mother, who lived in Coatesville, as a young child, and the family, the relationship to Strom Thurmond and, and other things. And one of the points I made to her is that her, uh, her father's story is equally important, but it's oftentimes unrecognized. He was a young black man, went to law school, got involved in the Georgia NAACP, had his life threatened any number of times interacted with Thurgood Marshall and whatnot, and that's the story to tell. Beaten to death by police officers? Or not beaten to death, sorry, but beaten, assaulted by police officers? Um, 
Julius, I thought was a super important character in the book. I did say for a while I was really taken with Matt Judge, Matthew Perry, but Julius, I agree, super important. And dying at the age of 46, that's the sort of thing that I talk about. I've pointed that out the whole time. Storm Thurman almost lived to 101. Julius Williams dies at 46. That is white supremacy racism. Um, when you say uh, Mr. the so-called ghostwriter, uh, Mr. Steidman or Steedman, uh, you say that their family's position is that he inserted himself in the book too much. Like, what does that what does that mean exactly? Well, it, it's Wanda's position. I didn't work with other family members. Okay, Wanda specifically. It was told a, uh, an incomplete story, and writers shape narratives. I mean, you've called me to task a number of times for the, the narrative that we shaped about the Coatesville lynching. Writers shape narratives, and they thought that uh, a uh, different, more complete story of um, uh, her grandmother and her mother, their relationship with Strom Thurmond should be told. And that um, there's simply, there was more to be said, I guess. And that's what uh, Wanda uh, has set her, her mind to doing. And she lives there in South Carolina and she's working on it. Well, bravo for her. We will look out for the te- that is grand information to know. Uh, just the fact that was one of the first things that Dr. Downey shared with us when I emailed him was, hey, I've been, you know, working with Wanda and going over this information and she's, you know, going to tell a more complete story and blah, blah, blah. Like, I am not surprised to hear that at all. I think some of our astute readers in the book club pointed out like, hey, I wonder what sort of influence this white author has contributed to the text now we have some additional input. Wow. Keep that, I guess, keep that in mind for some of the critiques that we have had about the text. Hmm. We will look out for the uh, follow-up. Do you have any idea when this is coming out, Wanda's uh, work? No, she's still working on it. She's doing some final, I, I believe, what would be final revisions. And, uh, but I don't think she has a, a timeline for a publication. We actually were talking about a uh, 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 television movie format for the story as well. But I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm no longer involved in the project, so I'm not sure if that's in development or not. Hmm. But the, the, the common connection is Coatesville, that after uh, <clears throat> um was born, uh, she was... Uh, uh, relocated to uh, to Kosovo, where she spent uh, most of her childhood and uh, young teen years. And as you read at the beginning of the program, uh, the story of Zechariah Walker was still very much alive. And Essie Mae Washington Williams was born in 1925, and I believe she died in 2013, about 10 years after Strong Thurman. She didn't even live as long as Strom Thurmond. She died at 87. He outlived, uh, at least age-wise, outlived everybody, all the main characters uh, in the text. 
Um, right. I guess the passage uh, before. Oh, I lost my place. Uh, the, oh, the I read that I included it. She said she overheard. Uh, it would be her stepfather talking to her, really her aunt. She thought it was her mother for a time, Mary and uh, John Henry Washington. Uh, and he That's says right. he's going to get his rifle and, you know, we're going to make sure that uh, another Zachariah Walker doesn't happen again. He goes out and these other black people and they meet this mob. And then the sheriff comes and says, whoa, 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 we you know, can't have all that. And that disperses the mob. Um, you do talk about this incident at the very end of your book. You don't include the black resistance. Did you find evidence of there being some sort of armed black resistance to try to stop this? Or did you not? Well, find we it? do refer to it. And that's one of the reasons the state police was were called in was to put down rumors of a, uh, a race riot. As where are where it. is the black element referred to specifically in your book? Well, I, it's probably in chapter one or two, and then uh, there's a, there's a much more public resistance that occurs, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, there there are two incidents of near lynchings that occur after the Zachariah Walker lynching. And uh, black men stood against the mob and the sheriff stood against them and he will take the the accused out of town and uh, just as you read it. Uh, those are two instances of black resistance. Uh, there was not formal open resistance, but there was fear that there might be some kind of racial insurrection or race riot in the immediate aftermath of the Zach Walker incident. And that's why uh, the state police were sent in and they stayed for several weeks. And that's all the beginning of the book. I didn't ask for instances of black resistance. I'm talking about the specific incident, 1938. Uh, where you say exactly as Essie May said, we don't want another Zachariah Walker. I'm saying that there is no mention of armed black resistance in your text anywhere. Chapter one, chapter two, unless you can give me a specific page number that that's not present. I'm not just talking about random resistance because I thought that was interesting. She details this with so much clarity from her childhood and you didn't have the black component of it mentioned, even though it's to the word. Another not going to have another Zachariah Walker, but yeah, I'm saying well, you're saying it's chapter one or two, and I'm saying that that's not the case unless you can give me a page number. It's in there, and I can either uh, talk to you tonight, or I can go and look in the book and find it. Let's find but, it. Let's find it. Uh, why? Yeah, go it. ahead because there, there are two uh, incidents of near lynchings that occur and you'll, you'll find mention of it in the book. And, um, you know, we've been at this, uh, Oh, there might be other ones. I'm just talking about the incident, you know, at the end, cause it's very detailed at the end of the book. That's not there, but if you can find it, let's, let's, let's nab it. Let's hear it. Uh, are you going to, are you going to get the book so we can see if we can get a page number? No, I, I'm not because we've oh, been okay. at this for how long now? Oh, I'm saying, no problem. <laughs> you could have just said no. You said you shouldn't have never even offered it, sir. <laughs> Fine. Well, much I, 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 
still wondering where you want this interview to go. After I've all covered. This, so. Thank you for sharing your time with us, Dr. Downey. I have covered a great deal. You hung out, even did a little bit of extra time with us. Again, if you were ready to go, you could have just said that instead of just even offering to go and look and set me mm-hmm. correct with the page number. No problem, sir. The book we have discussed, No Crooked Death on the 1911 Lynching of Zachariah Walker. And again, I'm saying Dr. Downey, I believe practiced racism, white supremacy with us in a number of deliberate, uh, a number of deliberate ways. Pick any number, go back to the economics. Like really, there's been a change in black people's economic status all from a very informed white man. He used the word change, but I mean, You owe me the respect of listening to what I said rather than misrepresenting what it's I said. It's in the uh, archive, sir. We can all go back and, and record and hear exactly what you said. Thank you kindly for sharing your time and energy with us this Monday evening, Dr. Downey. It's an interesting experience. Thank you. Interesting. You have embiggened us all with your presence. Dr. Downey. I muted everybody's line because I couldn't find where that uh, audio disruption was coming from. I think that was one of our listeners who, you know, had the dishes or what have you. Please use your mute button because I did think that was Dr. Downey. That did bother me for a second because I thought, man, he is doing dishes or something wacky uh, in the background. It's like, oh, okay, we got that taken care of. Yes, if you do dial in, uh, yeah, I feel a folks have life going on, offspring and everything else, or at work, driving, Nick over the road, just use your mute button, much obliged, or let me know and I can mute you so we don't have that sort of thing happen. Man, I can say for 13 years that we have been on the air, white guests only, white guests only, if it's going to be contentious and all the rest, I'd much ha- rather have it with an individual classified as white much rather all of that said it is so challenging doing this broadcast especially white guests only one we are despised everyone in the universe hates guts tea (laughs) worthless negro from Virginia (laughs) that is equally applicable Zachariah Walker and Gus T everyone hates Gus T they might even point to this program exhibit A see when you talk to that that white man It is so challenging because white people are the experts. It's not even close. Did you hear? I'm reading from Vincent Woodard and he's breaking up. Oh, Orlando Patterson. Orlando Patterson is a cowbell, by the way. But oh, yeah, that's Orlando Patterson. You should read this book and and all this. Oh, and James Lowen. And we sat down and had this conversation and I didn't disagree. White people are not ignorant about racism. S.E. May Washington Williams offspring sought him out. He's an expert to help get corrections and things. Now, I mean, in my view, that's the same problem we got into to begin with. Our astute listeners, including our narrator in Florida, who did a smashing job with the reading set. Man, I wonder how much of an influence this white writer has had on this year text. Haven't we run into that so many times? Madiba's autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, has a white co-author, and it was a substantial difference in the manuscript and the public text that everybody got. That's Richard Williams, black and white the way I see it, over and over, Solomon Northup, every time there's some sort of white hand. Oh, let's change this sentence. 
Let's say, that's it is so challenging. White people do have a lot of information. Dr. Downey, very informed about white supremacy, racism. How even I can tell from reading a book, same thing he said, paying attention with words. A white person using the term race relations and they're writing about lynching because James Lowen uses the term over and over and over and over. We're talking about lynchings and purges, purges, and you're going to say race relations. Same thing I said, like this is some sort of dispute between neighbors or equals as opposed to domination and terrorism. Lots of con- all that about this is not class. This is race. Even if we have white ethnics and the Irish and all, all of that is super important. How many non-white people come on here and talk about class and all the we've had tons of victims who do that. Listeners who do that. Investors who do that. What he said, Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, lynching is women's work. Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, also a cow. Bell guest on the cows in 2010. History of white people does have some constructive information, even homoeroticism. But that was super important. <laughs> Dr. Painter, I respect to her. He's not ignorant, but women's, excuse me, men's work. What are we to make of all these pictures of white women in these photographs? What are we to make of Carolyn Bryant Donham? He was very informed by, oh, she's in Tennessee and lives at this address. And <laughs> not that's what I'm saying. It is so challenging. You have all this information, and then we say, well, hey, are white people are they going to stop practicing racism, white supremacy? I haven't really seen any evidence of that. Oh, and at first, before you even got to these, I don't really try to lump people in the group. Man, we have. Southern culture, they have whole books on that. Caribbean culture, African-American culture. I don't ever hear, hey, 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 African-American culture. I don't lump all the Negroes together. Come on now. Nobody, white culture. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are white people going to stop practicing? Whoa, 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 whoa. And, and he's like, I don't want to tell people how to think now. Whoa, 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 whoa. Aren't you advising Wanda? He didn't go to the, you know what? That's how we, he could have told her that, right? He could have said the same thing that I just said. Like, hey, man, that's how we got in this problem to begin with. Like, you know what, man, if I can point you to some sources or whatever, but I mean, hey, you should do as much as you can on your own or find a black person to help with structure and editing and all of that. Like white people have done enough messing over black people trying to find their authentic voice and tell their story like hey let's keep the white paws out of it right he could have said that he could have told her the same thing he said to us at least be consistent that's why i said like man the when he was talking to i think that was nine clemson grad and the caller by white culture really all the response but i mean those in particular when he had the audacity to say, I resent what you said, it's like, come on, come on. If we got first time cows listeners, like I normally, I try to at least allow white people to respond. Like if I don't agree, or if I say, I think you're practicing racism, or what have you, I at least give you the chance to respond. That was so flagrantly like offensive 
deceptive like don't talk to me like I'm a total idiot man <laughs> like buckets I mean we never have buckets of words played like three times come on man come you are too informed to be talking nonsense to me uh, Dr. Downey and then want to get resentful about it and I want to add quickly too when I read that portion about there being this notion of a black spy I was totally not bringing that up as an indictment I wasn't even fussing at him about the lack of footnote it is fact there is no footnote that was not a oh man this is a demerit man you should nope just there's no footnote that's why I'm asking a question you can give more detail about it to say that I'm misrepresenting in the NAA hey you didn't include all that detail about the NAACP and where you got this from there's no footnote now if you have some residual anger because that was right after you know all of his nonsense in speaking with non-Clemson grad if you got some residual racism well then you know hey compartmentalize and move forward because we're talking about something totally different but I mean hey this is important we talk about this on neutralizing workplace racism every week victims of white supremacy being used as spies I was even curious like why did they have this as a suspicion <laughs> why, why did they even that's what I was asking it for like give us the detail then you can add don't come in to get snooty <laughs> and get an I resent you you're miscalculating come on man put a footnote in and be quiet man come on uh, the passage uh, let me make sure let's see this is one I think I'll get in I'll finish this one and then we'll see if folks have any thoughts on uh, their commentary I'll see if non-Clemson grad if it's not too late for South Carolina time like what you made because I mean even when he mischaracterized because all that started off when you asked your question non-Clemson grad and he said hey when you go talk to white he said take it to the street politics oh it was so many times I was like oh my god you're making me nauseous man you're making me nauseous what is street politics? What are street politics? Maybe that's it. Poor grammar. Street politics? What is that? I didn't, and he somehow takes that when he said, hey, do you go tell white people they need to go do some street politics to end racism? He said, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to be about nonviolence. I mean, gee whiz, if John... Uh, Lewis has taught us like what are you talking about don't talk to me like I'm a child nobody said nothing about violence man you're just practicing racism like I don't know what type of niggers your customers talking to where you can just say anything like my question had nothing to do with that and that's the same sort of thing that I mentioned at the beginning white people obfuscating and doing this deliberately like I'm sitting here about to fall over like who said anything about violence is that street politics is that being violent Oh my God, you're killing me. Street politics. I thought of that when we had the report a few weeks back when he said uh, we had a victim, a black teacher who was about to be fired because he was engaged in street basketball. <laughs> it's like, what is street basketball? Like, what is that's black? They said that's black culture, not basketball. Street basketball. Might have just been street ball. I think that was it. It was street ball. It wasn't even street basketball, just street ball. That's, that's Negro culture. Maybe street politics, street uh, street politics, street anything with street on it. 
You're not going to have an institution. <laughs> You're not going to have four walls to do this. It's just going to be some Negro activity in the street until the man disperses things. That's why I say we never have, a, if we have any new listeners, any time, first time listeners or what have you, we have had white people as guests on the program for 13 years, exclusively white guests. We never have the buckets of words sound effect like repeatedly <laughs> three I mean really once is enough come on he warranted about five or ten unless Gus T is talking crazy let me make sure I get in the spies part and then we'll hear uh, listeners folks if they have uh, commentary on what they heard. Yeah, here it is. I'm going to read the full because there's no footnote. So he says one individual did not want the tragedy to be forgotten. John J. Chapman, a New York essayist and crusader who had followed the entire affair with great interest and and had brooded over it, journeyed to Coatesville on the first anniversary of the lynching. He advertised a community prayer meeting hoping that area residents would attend and atone for the dreadful crime this is another one where do white people seem sincerely and greatly pained about racism I didn't even ask that question today didn't need to the daily local news observed that most people were weary of the lynching case but Chapman was undaunted he scheduled the meeting for Sunday August 18 in a rented storeroom the Nagel building in downtown Coatesville only two people a visitor to Coatesville and a black woman from nearby H-A-Y-T-I I guess that's Haiti whom Chapman believed was a spy sent to see what was going on joined Chapman and his wife despite the minuscule turnout Chapman delivered a powerful and persuasive speech in which he blamed the Coastville lynching on slavery. He referred to the incident as an American tragedy, part of the national corruption and evil that permeated the American character and insisted that all Americans were responsible for Zachariah Walker's death. There's no footnote. Now, I'm sure he has some other information or what have you. He talked all that about the NAACP and getting haughty and racist in his response. If it's that important, like I said, I would have loved a footnote because I would have checked it for sure. I'm, in fact, I would have made another field trip to the library. Let me hear. Why did they think this woman was a spy? <laughs> like what? What in the way? This is common. So, I mean, hey, maybe they know some tips. This is what to look out for. But dang. That's super common in the system of white supremacy. I thought it was important, but there's no footnote. That's why I said, like, don't come and get an attitude if you got some residual whatever, particularly when you've already agreed. Yep. Logical to be suspicious of everyone classified as white. And that was so significant right from the very beginning. He agreed with my definition and immediately like he didn't even take a breath yes your definition is accurate but I absolutely do not participate in that in any way shape form with my action or conduct and blah 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 because he'd already said that he was white it is work talking to individuals classified as white guests only white guests only white guests only people victims I I consider it I want to make sure I emphasize I consider it you are trolling me you are deliberately wasting my time and trying to annoy me when you write and suggest non-white people as guests on the program. And unless it's O.J. Simpson, 
Anthony Broadwater and you got, hey, I was hanging out and I bumped into the juice. He heard the book club. He wants to come on the cows. He said, give him a ring. Bang. Unless it's that. Unless it's Anthony Broadwater. I don't care who it, you can exhibit. Hey, what did he say about Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, who has been a guest on the cows? That right there. I'm not interested in having confused victims, Gus being one, and sparring with them about their confusion. I would much rather have it be we get heated with the people causing the problem. They are classified as white. So again, I'm considering you are wasting my time. I want to annoy Gus. Hey, I found a black person. Why don't you have them on the program? (laughs) That's what I think. I've said it very clearly. I can't say it any more explicitly white guests only no exceptions and then I have to cringe and tell who's coming on the program on Wednesday but there's even a reason for that but white guests only let's see the folks who dialed in if you'll have thoughts observations on what you heard during the broadcast line should be open feel free to let Gus T know like dang maybe Dr. Downey was not talking crazy maybe he was telling non-Clemson grad accurate information and he was not being racist and you know Gus T you drank a little too much coffee today or had to I did get to go to the beach today like woo, that was yum you had too much time at the beach you know calm down and you know get back inside away from those helicopters uh, the folks who dialed in with the hand up star 61 should be with us um, yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and clarify. Um, <laughs> I thought I was being a bit slow when I was talking to the gentleman. Um, but, um, I was simply trying to get him, um, you know, to be clear. Um, you're telling us things that we should do to make the problem better. Um, you're judging off things you said you saw in history. And then when I asked based on history, the very thing you study. Have you seen these things improve? Have you seen white people, any evidence that white people are going to change their disposition toward black people? Well, I, I think he lost it. And, and after a while, I tried to distract away from the question and just, like you said, buckets and buckets of words. That see there, that is so important. That's not a Clemson grad in South Carolina. Uh, that is so important. Um, just oh you muted thank you that is so important he said I thought I was slow there this victim of racism is a valedictorian he is probably the smartest person here I said you're acting like you can't under-. he didn't say anything about violence because then he would have said oh wait a minute I wouldn't do anything to recommend violence who even brought up violence man again now unless that's what street politics is I don't you know and that's his term non uh, non Clemson grad didn't say anything about street politics other than using it after he brought it up to say hey do you go to white people and tell them you know you need to do some some street politicking you know to, to stop racism do you go and tell them that and he gets into all this nonsense and that happens all the time we ask someone classified as white a reasonable question about racism or sometimes just about something constructed doesn't have anything to do with racism directly 
they give you all those buckets of words don't answer your question or saying all this craziness where you end up dang I must be I didn't get my man I'm just some old slow you know uh, can't even get my words together Negro that's what they've been saying about us we're slow in the bell curve and all that man I need to go in no they're practicing racism like woo. I don't want to answer that question. Let me move on. And then have an attitude to get rowdy about it afterward. Like, do what? Do what? Even when he said there's been such change in the economic position of black. What? You have so much information. Like, are you serious? Why would you even say such a thing? Social position. They've said consistently. Strom Thurmond one schools are more segregated are as or more segregated today whatever that means than they were 60 60 years ago that's not an improvement why are you that's not news to him either why are you even saying that to have us the victim they call it gaslighting have a dang I, I must be yeah I'm not the He's a valedictorian. He is not slow. He is practicing Dr. Downey. That's why I said I, we never have the bell that, or excuse me, the buckets of words. We never have it that many times. Like his conduct was disgraceful, even amongst the white guests. Like, wow. Even when I asked him about the homoerotic component, you already said lynchings gender specific targeting of black males why you keep deviating to aberrations that's what you said lynchings of some black females not that that's minimal but hey that's not what this is about and you have studied lots of lynchings so you know castration one could say that's a part of white culture to have to do and I'm just picking the pattern so that's two different white guests and he's oh yeah I wrote a, a review on the book the auto lynching burning of Sam Hose oh yes super informed they did the same thing there so why is this happening Historic. that's what you do analyze history buckets of words that's interesting all this focus on the black male phallus like someone we know grandcestor now we get buckets of words you can't even answer the question that was when the author of at the altar of lynching when he gave us all that nonsense about his Jamaican doctor remember that you need to take a break from this you're spending too much time on this what does that have to do with the question other folks who dialed in non Clemson grad valedictorian race soldier yeah he might be a valedictorian too non uh, retired firefighter in Florida that was more nonsense. Yes, sir. When, uh, when you asked, remember when you asked him, "What are you willing to give up?" and he gave all that nonsense. You, you're talking to me, Gus. Yes, sir. Say, uh, uh, say your, say you, your question statement again. You asked him, you know, what are you willing to give up to solve this problem? And he gave all that nonsense to your question. Yeah, I, I was I was just about to say that uh, I asked my question, uh, you know, because I, I can recall mentioning the last time that uh, we had a white person, not the last time we had a white person, the, the time before last we had a white person and I did not challenge that white person uh, like we're supposed to do. And uh, but this time I did and, and I got 
the expected uh, reaction. I wouldn't even call it an answer. It, it, it was a, uh, a reaction. Uh, you know, and I heard him say, I heard him say further in the interview that uh, he doesn't tell non-white people or he may have used the term black people uh, what to do, but but uh, uh, I, I wouldn't argue with him in personally, individually, but white people are always telling us what to do, especially in the people activity of religion and sex. You know, and then not only do they tell us what to do, you better do it. You better respond in this way, you know, when it comes to homosexuality, you know, uh, as, as far as you, you better, you better respond in the way that we want you to, to respond to it. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, religion, the, the same thing on how it was a forced type of situation. So, you know, I mean, it, People like white people uh, that does what he does, what he does with writing these books and uh, come up with all of this so-called research and whatnot uh, is basically is doing for their own self gratification, perhaps, or, or, or basically just a means to pretend that they are. Servicing some sort of uh, means of of countering racism, but they actually are not, and they know they're not. They know they're not doing it. Uh, I think you stated it uh, uh, somewhere through the interview, and uh, this is just another example. That's that's all it is. Another example. You know, in other words, all of the work and all of the the different things that they would have to say during the interview. Bottom line is. Well, what are you doing it for? What are you doing it for? Matt, I mean, that question should actually go to non-white people also. <laughs> you know, something or something similar, but especially to a white person. That's all I'm, I have to say for right now. Excellent question. Excellent question. Um, let's see. Any, any of the other folks who dialed in? with a hand up y'all have any thoughts observations. if anybody who thought Dr. Downey that he was not practicing racism he was being accurate logical truthful with his responses and Gus T as I said you had a little too much coffee calm it down uh, it did stop falsely accusing him of having dishes in the background right on that was that was one error my bad my bad but any other folks with commentary um, yes uh, they, oh, go ahead you go ahead Oh, thank you, sir. Um, I was saying uh, no. I mean, white people are extremely deceptive. So, no. I mean, we would have to criticize and question everything they say. I mean, at this point, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with um, uh, intensely questioning uh, white people, or and especially Mr. Downey, after he agreed to um, to your terms. I mean, and just totally. Uh, going against that, I mean, another act of white supremacy. Um, I myself, I appreciate you for providing this um, platform to question whites. I have to get better at questioning whites myself. Um, uh, is it okay to submit um, a different topic? Because I had, I want to uh, submit something to you, Gus. Uh, let's see. If it's different, then let's. 
uh, make sure we had someone else that they had commentary on Dr. Downey and then we can get your other subject as we uh, get ready to wrap things up uh, let's see our other caller who had commentary on Dr. Downey um, yes yes um, you know when I asked him when uh, firefighter from uh, Florida you know kind of asked about uh, who's more confused and um, you know for some reason, he wanted to keep interjecting um, into the conversation. I'm, I'm pretty sure that had nothing to do with his book. But um, when asked about uh, whites being deceptive, he says, um, you know, basically, like, they can be ignorant and also practice deception. You know, that's something I got to really, like, think about. And when we're talking about practice deception, we're talking about deception on a high level. We're talking about deception in the Board of Education. We're talking about people that's heads the Board of Education, people that are in uh, governor mansions um, across the United States that is supposed to be ignorant, but also are practicing deception that's um, affecting lives, mainly black people's lives especially when he talks about the uh, misinformation that's being spread about CRT. If I'm not mistaken, um, I don't really know the education level of uh, some of these uh, politicians, but a lot of them, are, you know, go to, um, you know, real prestigious, um, graduated from real prestigious college, colleges, you know, so I, I just, I, I really have to ponder on um, being ignorant and deceptive um, at the same time. And um, you're also uh, correct when you uh, interject it and how he, you know, you can't, you can't be naive about gentrification. You can't be naive with the uh, black people um, begging um, or pleading with the government for reparations, you know, to say that things are better. But when you have people on this level uh, with, with those accolades and those accomplishments with doctors in front of their name, white people. So when they say things and they confuse other victims, these are the same victims that we in turn have to, you know, argue with or, you know, then we get into the uh, name calling and, you know, this person is a coon and that person is a coon, you know, and, you know, we got people quoting stats from the FBI and also will quote um, remarks that, this doctor will make that would just basically further, further the um, confusion. So um, I think um, your assessment of the doctor was correct. Dear Senator uh, from SMA, that's our victim in New Jersey. Much obliged, sir. Uh, she said the, uh, she talked about the grand American coon hunt down in South Carolina that is still rolling strong they just we literally we could have like gone on location and had a cows broadcast from the 2022 South Carolina Grand American Coon Hunt hmm words hmm um the white people being uninformed when that was asked he made that right there should stand out he made a point of that so many 
times during the discussion while demonstrating voluntarily his own expertise on the subject of white supremacy racism over centuries but white people are ignorant white people are ignorant white people are ignorant oh white people are uninformed white people and then you got to do all these in that maybe they're intentionally uninformed maybe they don't want to know and all this other nonsense if white people are so ignorant about white supremacy racism why was Essie Mae Washington Williams seeking him out he's an idiot right white people are dumb they don't know anything about racism white supremacy why does she want to talk to him hmm and like I said if it's hey I don't tell black people what to do because we've heard that a whole lot of times when we've asked people hey what are some things that black people should do to solve this problem the question today I think was do you know some ways to get white people to stop practicing racism to neutralize that oh oh, 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 oh. I don't I don't tell white black people what to do did you say that to Wanda SMA's also hey 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 that's how we got into this problem in the first place man let me direct you to some black people that are qualified intelligent because it's got to be black people that are qualified and intelligent that could have done what she was requesting if it's historical work research editing structure all of the above it's got to be black people that could have done that why not pass that off hey white people have done enough meddling in black people storytelling let me find you some black people that can help you with that Dr. Nell Irvin Painton even. Why? Right? No? I got this. Come on. Apparently sometimes they do as retired firefighters said. Sometimes they do. Seems to me all the time they got no problem telling black people what to do, how to think and you better do it. Quickly before we hear, our, oh, we did our three. Yes, it will be very quick. Uh, white, he had so much rhetoric. Incidentally, it's rare to have a white person challenge me about what's in a text like that right there. Let me say, like, man, you're gonna say this information is in the book. You don't have a page number. It's not footnoted. All this additional information that's not cited that's not in the book like that is rare like they normally say I don't remember that or whatever I guess we've had a few but I mean even that is like wow I don't care what you have in front of you and you just read I'm gonna get upset and er, how dare you challenge me about this I even said I thought he had a lot of constructive information in the book which he did but I mean hey system of white supremacy you can expect that and the racism but the rhetoric white privilege taking it to the streets holding people accountable fair legislation polarization a constructive social tool that's what he said getting white people to be informed about racism that that's a constructive social tool street politics playing to people's prejudices he knows black and white people not non-white black and white people who have a respectful approach to each other the rhetoric was boundless words are very important non 
Clemson grad valedictorian. I thought I was slow. <laughs> no. Racism. And that can be the effect, literally. Confusion. Master deceivers. Uh, our other caller who said that they had commentary that was unrelated. Uh, make it brief so we can wrap up, sir. Uh, thank you, Gus. But I'll just send you an email. It's just a um, a uh, question you had uh, some time ago about Sundown Town, about codifying. I'll just send you an email about it. Oh, yes. Better term. Better seat words. Very important. Very important. Until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com reading more important than watching television like this is signature work for so many reasons I'm so glad that we picked this book and we might even have one more I didn't even want to I went to the library and I found all those books like at the altar of uh, lynching, burning of Sam Hose, and uh, all these other books. You know, in addition to this one, No Crooked Death, that was one, the only book that I really went to get. So I got all these other books and blah, blah, blah. We had, you know, some of the folks on the program and everything. I didn't even want the biographies on Strom Thurmond. I was like, oh, that I don't want to read. I don't even know what I was thinking in terms of why do you not want to read about Why are you disinterested? flip through and oh my god he's having sexual relations with this woman on the way to the electric chair he just mentioned that Sue Hogue Sue Logue excuse me she's on the way to the electric chair convicted cop killer in South Carolina and he's in the vehicle touching and patting and doll on the J. Strom Thurmond no other uh, but I emailed the white woman who co-authored the biography, unauthorized Old Strom, uh, Miss Thompson, and she's like, oh, maybe I'll have time. Let's see in May. So we will see if she's willing to come on the program. Like, oh, yeah, like, I'm so glad that I got it. Sometimes even books that you think you don't want to read, you should just pick it up anyway, especially if they're at the library. Grab it anyway, because you never know if you just flip through and a few pages or even today it might not be relevant a month from now answer may be different reading and writing I do applaud Wanda for writing I super applaud and book comes out we will have to see if maybe we should read it in the book club to see what are the major differences and even to see what Dr. Downey's influence is in that book but we will look but man if you are going to write do everything that you can to minimize and or totally eliminate white input in the book. I mean, if it's going to be like marketing or something like that, great. That's going to be constructive. But I mean, in terms of the text, what you say and how you articulate your narrative, like whites have had enough. He called it ghost, right? There's been so much of that where you think it is a black person telling their story and what happened, their life and what have you, maybe, maybe not. Gus, uh, if I can add before you close uh, about ghostwriting, and now that you've introduced me to the author of Shad. You got 10 seconds because we went way over time, so you have to go real quick. Yes, yes. I just want to say most people that I ask, they know that a white person wrote Shaft. Most black people don't. 
You said I'm, they do know I'm or like, don't know. They don't know. Oh, okay. something like eleven and zero. <laughs> it's unanimous. It's unanimous. Even Neely Fuller Jr. I said that when we ended that when we ended that book. I called and asked him because I said, "Oh man, he lived with us. Let's see." And he said he didn't know. He said he wasn't surprised. And you know, we talked about the homoeroticism. He said that. He said that. He said that because he said he was no fan of Shab, but he said he did not know that that was based on a book written by a white man, Ernest Tidyman. Unanimous. I have not talked to one, talk about masters of deception. I have not talked to one non-white person, black person who was aware written by and even now you want to again, the homoeroticism that's right in your face in white supremacy racism. He's done all this work, Dr. Downey, on these lynchings and castrations of black males. What is that? Homoeroticism. I mean, you got to say something about that. And it's all this stumbling and fumbling and mumbling right there. White culture again, shaft written by a white man. And we think that that's black culture again, black culture, shaft, Sanford and son, street ball, street politics. Make black culture replacing white supremacy with justice and being astute about the use of words and using words in a counter racist fashion to reveal truth racists do the opposite lots and lots of jargon Woo. taking it to the didn't that a song take it that's a song man he, that's a total song take it to the streets do the, do the young folks you can look that one up online take it to the streets I think that was 1980s man we have to see if we can include that as we fade out uh, maybe I'll put it in the archive anywho we will be, oh my god I forgot we're here on Tuesday I said all that about white guests only. We do have a black guest for Wednesday. I'm doing super courteous. Thankful she's sharing her time. But I mean, it's white guests only for many reasons. The only reason our guest for Wednesday, University of Washington Research, Danielle King. She's a professor at Rice University. She does research on racism in the workplace. I think that is such an important topic. It is more important than my avoidance of non-white guests. I said, if she's willing to talk, we should do it. She said, yes, Wednesday, May 11, 2022, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We'll talk about her report, which is specifically about anti-black racism, ways that black people are mistreated in the workplace and things that can be done to neutralize that that I feel like is a subject matter that should be talked about all the time way more than it is that should be Wednesday breaking the rule but this is the exception white guests only much obliged for folks tuning in hopefully it was worthy of your what is this got today so confused Monday worthy of your Monday evening uh, we'll be back two days Wednesday uh, sobriety would be best. They said Zachariah Walker was under the influence. That is no excuse, but sobriety would be best. In addition to being sober, uh, if you're about out and about, no confrontations with strangers. That's part of this, too. Uh, we should be thinking, hey, this person, white or non-white, male or female, could be armed, may have an armed entourage. If you are not ready to die and or kill exit 
if you're in a vehicle you're sober buckled up not on your mobile phone we need all of our attention and we're doing everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person no name calling no gossiping no throw away black children cow signing up thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning Mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned